house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. You're the first person to notice. No one from our office had the slightest idea. It's called a panic room. What? A safe room. Castle keep in medieval times. Forged concrete walls, buried phone line not connected to the house's main line. You have your own ventilation system and a bank of surveillance monitors that covers nearly every corner of the house. What's to keep someone from prying open the door? Steel. Very thick steel. My room. Definitely my room. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that's both a zoo and a farm. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my favorite white guy in cornrows, Chris File. Hello, Chris. I'm not happy with how this is. <laughs> I knew you wouldn't off. be. <laughs> you have never said anything so offensive about me. So. <laughs> um, very I excited. Half of my face. <laughs> sure. <know>. Yes. <laughs> I. All right. We'll get into it in a bit. But like, I do think he's very effectively used and also sometimes funny in this movie. I know we're not in a very Jared Leto place in the culture at the moment, but. Uh, Listen, everything about this movie has to be solid to great. Uh, <laughs> we can't let Jared Leto sully everything. That's true. All right. Uh, welcome, listeners, to our May miniseries. It is our kickoff episode to our five-part tribute to Entertainment Weekly and the movies that graced the cover of their seasonal movie preview issues. The, the magazine issues that turned us... All into the little freaks that we are. I feel like this is, uh, we mentioned this a little bit in our uh, intro episode, but uh, so many conversations I have had with people, guests of the show, friends, sort of similarly movie-obsessed people, people who, who write about movies for a living, and most of us seem to have this as a touchstone, sort of an early exposure to Entertainment Weekly as sort of like a bible you know what i mean just like a little entertainment bible so we're gonna be talking about it for the next five weeks we're gonna be talking about uh, ew cover movies and to kick it off chris i'm so excited that we have this guest for the first time on our podcast in general wonderful get for the podcast but specifically for this miniseries was uh was pretty invaluable we have uh we we are welcoming uh, senior entertainment writer for Variety, Adam B. Very. Adam, welcome to this at Oscar Buzz. Uh, guys, thank you so much for having me. That was quite an introduction, and I am uh, just thrilled uh, that I have been able to come and join the fun that is this this discussion of of uh, once upon a time Oscar baited movies. Uh, this is I'm so excited to be here. Thank you guys for having me. Very excited to have you. I, uh, of course, introduced you as your current title at Variety. I couldn't remember yes. what your uh, what your last 
post was when you worked for Entertainment Weekly. So uh, I'll, I'll sort of let you get into that. But uh, you are your uh, f- for the first time we've got firsthand, uh, you know, uh, a firsthand witness on on hand for uh, for one of our yes. subjects. You wrote for the Great Entertainment Weekly for how long? From when till when? Well, um, you know, technically speaking, I started writing for them in the spring. Uh, well, <laughs> um, technically, I was paid to write for them starting in the summer of 2001 when I was an intern there. Okay. Uh, and then I became on staff in 2006, and I worked there until um, the end of 2012 when I went over to BuzzFeed News. But um, my claim to fame... Uh, such as it is at EW, is that I, before I got hired, I had five letters to the editor published. Get out of here. <laughs> oh, my in God. In the magazine. Yeah. Um, it started my senior year of high school. Um, Amazing. They had done a story on the uh, rise of the multiplex with stadium seating in the late 90s. Oh. Um, when, when, you know, movie you know, the movie theater business was booming. Right, of course. And, it would never uh, end. And ex- yeah. <clears throat> it would never end. And expansion was uh, was the word of the day. And all of these different chains were creating uh, multiplexes with stadium seating and premium sound and picture. And But the story that EW ran was sort of lamenting the loss of the single screen uh-huh. mom and pop yep. movie theater. And, and, um, and me being a sort of cheeky teenager... You know that the AMC had opened uh, a a megaplex just uh, like a few, like a, less than a year previous in my hometown of Columbus, Ohio, and so I wrote a letter in which I basically said, "You guys got it wrong. These theaters are great. AMC opened a theater in my town. And it's wonderful, and you you you're 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 barking up the wrong tree here." And AMC <laughs> saw that AMC saw that letter and sent me like twenty free movie. Packs. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, Adam, so, um, you may not know, yeah. I'm in Columbus, Ohio, so I think I know what AMC you're talking about. The Lennox. The Lennox. Yeah, it's no yes. longer an AMC now. Oh, it's not? It, it's it been a minute since I've been in, in Columbus. It was the first, like, thing to die in the pandemic here, and then another oh, chain. Oh, no. What, who owns it now? Uh, or is it I, even open? It, it's open. It's like Phoenix Theaters. It is basically just the same building, and they cleaned it. Oh, it's, well, it's a little bit of a ghost town, but that's, you know, it's that's, still there. It, it needed a cleaning, I guess. But yeah, so like, and then throughout college, I w- I got different letters of the editor published, um, and then uh, and then I had, and then I was an intern, and I actually, you know, they had to hire jobs. you as an intern at that point. Like right? you'd given them so much free content <clears throat> yeah. by that point. Yeah. Yeah. At, after I graduated from college, I was an intern there for the summer. And then I, and one of the interns jobs was to actually handle the reader mail. Um, so sure. I sort of saw the other side of it. And then <laughs> I freelanced for them for several years before I got hired on in staff. And, um, and at one point they had a column in the t- movie section that was like, ask a critic. So it was sort of like a, a, a critic specific letter sure. to the editor. And on a whim, I sent a letter in under a pseudonym <gasps> to see if I could get it published. And they published it. Wow. <laughs> what was this letter? 
<clears throat> and then, so then, um, when I got hired, I was I uh, the the editor in chief at that point was his name was Rick Tedzelli, and he he took all the staff out for dinner one night, and he was br- he was telling this story about how I was the staffer who had four letters to the editor published in the magazine, and and I sort of sheepishly said, actually, it's five. Oh my god! <laughs> <He's> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so, what, what was the pseudonym yeah. letter yeah. about? Though? Oh, I don't remember. I I honestly <laughs> do not remember. I I um. I, I I couldn't tell you what it was, but I remember I just I remember I knew the the kind of cadence that they liked those letters to be in, right? So I just right. wrote it in a very pithy EW voicey way, and and they and they and they bit it, they took the bait. <laughs> so, Amazing. So yeah. you as a summer intern then? So you were you mentioned yeah. you did uh, letters to the editor stuff, fielding uh, emails and whatnot. Yeah. Did they have you do any of the like uh, grunt work for? gathering info for the fall movie preview which published published in august i believe yeah i don't think so um that was that they 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 kept that kind of stuff away from the interns and most stuff i i I did get bylines in the magazine but that was for news and notes right 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 at the front of the book but you know i did get you know to sort of see how all that came together and what that looked like um and we can get into the mechanics of how those preview issues worked. I'm, I'm actually excited to talk about them if you want to hear. But yeah, totally, uh, nine thousand um, <clears> percent. <throat> yeah, the spring it, the spring preview issues operated differently from the from the uh, the other seasonal preview issues generally. But the um, but it was it was so it was fun to sort of see how like the, the sort of nomenclature they had for it and how yeah. that sort of came together. So I sort of watched it come together, but they, I don't recall them assigning me to do anything i had plenty of other grunt work to do so that 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 was more farmed out to the sort of entry-level staffers like yeah editorial assistant sure 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 it's funny you mentioned your your uh your letter about the uh the multiplexes i think we've talked about this on before Mm -hmm. how that was the sort of boogeyman back then you'll see it in a lot of like you know uh, it was in the holiday, right, Chris? When the Eli Wallach character is talking about how you know, oh, it's all multiplexes these days and, and stadium seating, right? And that Stereo was the, sound. That was the new thing that was bad. And now you look at now, and we're just like we're we're clamoring to save our big multiplexes. And Adam, yeah. you have one of my favorite uh, recurring tweet types, which is every once in a while you'll just be like, "The arc light's still closed," which is <laughs> yes. <laughs> someone's got to know someone's got to pay attention yeah this is my it, thing it, it, it's a some real... celebrity needs to save that some celebrity needs for, to buy it for the for for the angelino i've lived in los angeles for 20 years almost now and wow. and it is and i and the arclight had opened right before i moved here so I, yeah i've only known los angeles with the arclight and it is truly a gut punch every t- single time i'm reminded that it doesn't exist i've only been there once uh but i loved it i saw hail caesar there when i visited a few years ago and it's a cool looking place like beyond just the fact that it's like a nice place to see a movie and you know all the sort of modern amenities of such but it's just a cool looking building like anybody who saw uh once upon a time in Hollywood, sort of, you know, you know that that shot of it. Yeah, um, the, there's the, there's Cinerama Dome, and then there's the the theater attached to it, which is also wonderful. And it's it's this yeah. kind of thing that it became such the so it, integral to the yeah the lifeblood of L.A. Um, that I, I sort of 
took it as a given that it would always be there. So when it disappeared, it really feels like you've lost a little bit of a limb for I the am, life of LA. Adam, we've talked about this. I know I DM'd you about this when the, the, uh, when the Arclight closed initially. Yeah. It was just like, it, it baffles me that there hasn't been just this consortium of like, where are your Clooney's and your Spielberg's and your, you know, cruises and whatever, just sort of like pull your money and resurrect, like even resurrect, just one theater you know what i mean and like i don't yeah. know slap your name on it or something or whatever your vanity yeah. you know production company is or something and like <laughs> save a thing that people love and earn you know unlimited goodwill from people i don't understand what i don't do that i i don't pretend to know all of the ins and outs of the drama there but i think yeah. that there's a a debt issue that is sure. sort of a poison pill for yeah. <laughs> for a lot of that kind of thing to happen but Regardless, it's it's very sad that it's gone, and uh, I hope it comes back. And anybody listening to this who has tens of millions of dollars, you should consider. Yes, <laughs> you should consider rescuing it, the ArcLight. At least the dome, because you would think the dome is like a national landmark or something. Right? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm sure it is. It's it. The whole thing. It's just the saddest, saddest right. thing. Yeah. Well, uh, less sad, though, I want to talk about uh, your Oscars origin story, because this is your first time guesting on the episode. So we have Uh, all our first time guests sort of, you know, talk about what uh, got them into the Oscars in the first place, what sort of radicalized you about Oscars kind of culture. And, uh, you know, what's 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 your tale, Adam? Well, I mean, it's all tied up with Entertainment Weekly. That's the that's the sort of sure. the beauty of of me coming in on <laughs> for this issue, really. Yeah. Um, like I watched the Oscars and was sort of followed them, um, but like right when I was sort of coming of age to have my own point of view on movies. Like famously in my family, when I we walked out of seeing Home Alone, I was like, "Best Picture." How many Oscars do you think it's going to yeah. win? Yeah. Um, <laughs> But but really, once I began to have my own taste is right when Entertainment Weekly started to really kind of take, you know, find its voice and take command of leading the conversation about the Oscars. And yeah. that was around 92, 93. And that's when I started to really, that's, you know, 93 is the Schindler's List year. And that's sure. really the year that I, that was like my freshman year of high school. And that's really when I started taking culture seriously in a way that I, you know, before would, wouldn't, wasn't mature enough to really even consider. Yeah. And so I, and my parents got me a subscription to Entertainment Weekly, very, you know, very much around that time. So my, you know, interest in award season and how you talk about award season and think about it and yeah. You know, the movies that you're tracking early on, all of that is tied up with my obsession with Entertainment Weekly as a teenager. You know, at a certain point, I uh, my mom had to hide it from me so I would finish my homework right. before <laughs> I could read it. Right. So, you know, it was, you know, I made a, I, it, it's probably no surprise that I was able to game the system to, to as much as I did. Right. AEW because I made, I made it sort of like, you know, as so many other people, I'm far from unique here, but I studied it religiously from like every single punctuation mark, yeah. like font choice, change in the masthead. It was all, you know, interesting to me and, 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 and really informed so much of how I, you know, my life trajectory and how yeah. I got into, you know, you know, typography and fonts and have become such a font nerd. It's, 
you know, as we'll talk about this issue, which has like 17 different fonts. Oh, I'm it. so, so excited <laughs> to get into that. Um, you know, but like it, it is, you know, so I, and that's all very much tied tied up in the Oscars. You know, the Oscars yeah. coverage in EW, I think, you know, you, you think about the last 30 years of how award season has become such an animal Yes. You know, an ecosystem onto itself. Yes. Um, and a sort of micro economy. And thank God for well, it, or else I would be a broke uh, uh, writer. Um, I would exactly. Yeah, right? I would have yeah. no value. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, we, well, you know, it's, it, you, know, you think about the, uh, the, uh, the multiverse version of our lives without, you know, if you take Entertainment Weekly out or, or it, you know, it, it collapses when the, within the first six months of, of its run, which it very well could have. It was, you know, you look at those first, that first year of EW and it's a right. real dicey magazine that has not figured out what it's supposed to be yet. And, yeah. um, like they had a cover issue on the, f- on like the Sunday comics, the funny pages. Like wow. they, they, they just, didn't they didn't know. know it. They didn't have it yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that was famously because like another cover fell through and they had like, <laughs> you know, 36 hours to figure out what to do instead. So, yeah. um, but, you know, and you, you think about it, without EW, I don't know if there would have been as much of an engine for award season, you know, yeah. right at the height of, um, you know, we can't talk about award season without talking about Miramax and how right. they really transformed yeah. the way that you think about awards in that way. And I think that that's all very much tied up in how EW covered it. And then everyone sort of following that lead and yeah. really sort of creating this media economy. So well, yeah, that's my origin story. You sure. wonder how much EW contributed to the sense that the Oscars, the Oscars as a race, right? The Oscars as an ongoing thing that moves and evolves throughout the year and you can track where we are at the halfway point and where are we, you know, uh, three quarters of the way through the year where I wonder if before that, because you read in, in, you know, books, we read stuff like Inside Oscar, sort of like stuff about old, uh, old Hollywood or even like Hollywood through the, you know, 70s and 80s. And they talk about the Oscars and there was obviously a lot less known uh, come Oscar nomination morning about, you knew what the studios Mm -hmm. were pushing and whatnot, but it was still a sense of, on this day, we're going to find out what the the tastemakers and what the people in the Academy really have made of this year. And yeah. now it is a sense of we can track it. We are we have our, you know, our radar on it all year. And so by the time we get to the end of the year, it is sort of the culmination of a, a story, a, a sort of a timeline. And. Uh, I have to imagine that Entertainment Weekly was the mechanism by which most of us were able to track that. Uh, yeah, I mean, the whole idea of um, the slots, who yes. fills these five mm-hmm. slots in the acting categories especially, Yes, was yeah. really pioneered by EW. And, and I think for good and ill, I think it really kind of in some – to you know, at the time, there was a sense of like they were just sort of – calling the races they saw it forming but then you kind of you know shorting it's a schrodinger's cat situation of like well if there wasn't somebody observing this would it have evolved in that direction right Right. so yeah you know you 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 look at you know like the 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 um the supporting actress race in the 80s when you've got you know like 
Leslie Ann Warren getting a nomination for Victor Victoria right. or Elizabeth Elizabeth McGovern getting a nomination for Ragtime or you know um uh you know just like you know very surprising out of nowhere nominations that you yeah. wouldn't necessarily have seen coming. Where are you going to get the Amy Madigan nomination for Twice in a Lifetime these days? Like that's exactly. never going to happen. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. yeah or yeah. like Anne Southern for The Whales of August. Yes. Like how yes. like you know, so it's 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 very much the, you know, that I think was one of the major contributions that I think EW did, which, you know, in like they had two or three different issues where they would tell you who's in the running for each slot. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think those became not predictive, but prescriptive and in a way that, you know, well, how, you know, this is Oscar nerd, fodder for sure. hours and hours and hours. But like, sure. I, I do think that that was something that EW really brought to the conversation in a way that had not been sort of yeah. formalized in the way that EW did. And, and, and that really changed how I think people thought about the race in, in the leading up months. Well, and not just the people at home. I mean, when you describe it as prescriptive, too, it also taught people how to campaign as well. Yes. Like, you see campaign shifting under that type of, like, logic, you know? Well, and especially because if you're talking about, especially the nomination stage, where you're trying to distill an entire year's worth of movies into, you know, five names to write down on a ballot, and how does how does that all sort of coalesce in these kind of laws of big numbers thing, you know, coalesce into who are the contenders? And I, I imagine a centralized hub like entertainment weekly, even more so than the trade papers, because, you know, uh, no offense to your current employer, obviously, but like there is, there was, there's a breath that entertainment weekly, especially back then when it was just sort of, you know, your, your print issues, um, I don't know. There was there was a gathering quality to it. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. also what e, what EW did is took a conversation that was happening in like power lunches uh, and mm. you know and meeting you know like people yeah. just talking in the industry, right? Um, and and brought it to the mainstream. Mm. So um, took a thing that was was kind of restricted to the trades, right? And was sort of the province of the trades. And sort of, you know, put a pop sheen on it, made yeah. it really digestible and fun and engaging, and um, brought it to a much wider audience. And you know, one of the th- the sort of miracles of EW is that in in the world of publishing, that was not in any way perceived as a, a slam dunk thing to do. I think that yeah. there was a real question of like, is there a readership for this? And what, you know, EW born out in the 90s was, at least at that point in time, there really was. And yeah, yeah. it really, like, I think that's, you know, you, you look at the evolution of EW in the 90s and, you know, their Oscar issues, they had some in the early 90s. But then through the late 90s, it just, you know, exploded to the point yeah. when you've got, you know, I think the sort of the number of Titanic covers that EW did around <laughs> 97, 98... 
um, and, you know, all tied up in the Oscar race, which, you know, at that point ran well into March yeah. and April. Like, so it, it just really, it really became, you know, central to the way that EW operated and made money. And, yeah. um, and I think that that was, you know, uh, and then, you know, part of why I think EW had struggled in later decades was that so many other people then sort of took that model and put their own spin on it. And like yeah. where EW was had a sort of monopoly on that kind of conversation for a while, then, you know, they're just, it's just, just proliferated yes. the number of, I mean, like every single person who works in the word space now I think probably came of age reading EW's awards coverage. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yes, yeah. That was the yeah. the root of the of the tree, as it were. Yeah. Um, just for our listeners, to a, f- a formatting note, um, if you're among the type who tracks how late in an episode we will get to the sixty second plot description, these episodes <laughs> on EW issues are going to throw that completely out of whack because we're gonna <laughs> we're we're gonna be talking about the the issue, the magazine issue at hand up top and then we will get to the movie at hand a little bit later so like we will be talking about panic room trust but like uh, right now uh we're going to talk about specifically the 2002 spring movie preview edition with jodie foster of course gracing the cover for panic room um i i sent you guys i got i got the issue in my hot little hand and then i sent you guys some scans of uh, yes. pertinent information the first of which being right there at the beginning of the book winona Ryder. at this point this is february 15th 2002 is the date on this issue winona Ryder is on trial for shoplifting from Saks fifth avenue in i want to say i imagine beverly hills yes and it was a big deal this headline is yes. so funny to me um, Queasy writer Queasy is the headline. <laughs> the EW headlines also like an underrated phenomenon. We don't really talk about it a ton, but like uh, yeah. they they were f- my fondness for puns. I think was uh, was supported by my early EW readership for sure. Yeah, a whole page yes. on Winona uh, being on trial and reading it now. I had forgotten that like they really kind of threw the book at her for yeah. Like really she did, did, she did steal thousands of dollars worth of merchandise. But you get the sense reading this piece that like other people have tried to do that too, and sort of got slapped on the wrist for it. And yeah. for whatever reason, Winona couldn't make this one go away. Yeah, it, one of the things that was really striking to me reading this also was, you know, this was in uh, the era when the opening of Entertainment Weekly was a section called News and Notes. Yes. Uh, which went away in the most recent decade um, and got replaced by uh, first the sort of must list and then other sort of attempts. Because, you know, at a certain point, the Internet outpaced yes. this yeah. kind of coverage. So you wouldn't run this story in EW now. Right. You wouldn't uh, necessarily. You would probably put this together as uh, something that you would run online. Although, I mean... <clears throat> Not to put too fine a point on this, but one of the many things about EW that makes me sad is that this kind of coverage kind of has gone away from the yeah. magazine and from the website for a while now. Yeah. Um, whereas you know, it, you know, where I work now, Variety, uh, would co- it covers this stuff all the time. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, that this you know, it's very interesting. Also, it's sort of interest like 
<laughs> the um, the every time there's a famous person, their name is in bold. Yes. Um, yes. And um, there's a quote from somebody who's like saying, "Post OJ, no prosecutor in the city wants to be perceived as cutting anyone the slightest break because they're a celebrity." But in case somebody didn't understand who they were referring to, they put Simpson in brackets. Like, who else could that be oh, referring oh, to? Oh, that OJ. Okay. All right. Yeah. I don't know. Free Winona. I should dig up. Uh, I never owned any Free Winona merch, but I probably... When I read this from the issue, I was kind of... I had to question. I'm pretty sure... That the first time I ever saw a free Winona t-shirt was them talking about it in EW. <laughs> yeah, almost certainly. Almost certainly Probably, true. yeah. Yeah. Can I just also say, because this is going to come up, I think, a lot as we yeah. talk about this issue. There's a attitude towards women in general in this yes. issue that was bracing oh, yeah. to read. Yes. And it starts with this story. But there's just, you know, it's a very sort of like, you know we contextualizing Britney Spears style. Yes. You feel to all of this where there's just ways that people are referred to or questions that are asked or things that are covered. Like for example, a little bit later in the issue is this section called the scout, which was an attempt on EW's part to get more female advertising. So that was, it was, it was not sort of like, you know, pure pop culture stuff, but it was stuff like fashion or, yeah. you know, um, or real estate trends. And and one of the boxes is Makeover of the Week, and it's this before and after shot of Greta Van Susteren's yeah. uh, plastic surgery. Yeah. Um, which, first of all, I kind of did a double take even realizing that this was that long ago. I know. It was I know. Ago. <laughs> I know. Um, but, but just, you know, that kind of story – with that kind of framing, you just would never do now. Well, it's, not it's also shocking. not Greta Van Susteren's only appearance in the issue because she's also in the hot sheet. She's the um, she's the item in the hot sheet gets it, that gets the uh, illustration as well. And yep. yes, I was on when I was on a podcast like it's nineteen ninety nine talking about the year end issue in ninety nine. There was a lot of that. Of course, ninety nine was you know Britney Spears uh, that year. I believe there was some kind of uh, Pamela Anderson uh, update. So yeah, the the tone that you know that was able to be taken towards female celebrities. This very sort of like casually sexist, casually. Um, you know, judgmental uh, of like not that sort of cake and eat it too of like leering, but also judgmental that you're having us leer at you uh, yeah. kind of a thing, yeah. which is very, yeah. 19, very 1990s. This was not certainly yeah. EW was not the only purveyor of this. Um, no, not at all. But I, I mentioned the hot sheet because one of the other things that I kind of remembered as I was paging through this and one of the things that I loved about EW was how incredibly digestible it was. And like, they did not invent the listicle. Certainly they did not invent sort of mixing up formats, but like the fact that you could get, you know, not only like multi-page articles, but you would get, you know, just these little tidbitty things of ways to convey information or trends or, you know, updates. And I, I, I'm sure it was a huge part of why 
I just devoured these issues back then because you could get so much information. This sort of in a way that the internet really, you know, took with took that ball and ran with it to the nth degree. This idea of I'm looking at a page and I'm just getting so much information from yep. one page. I'm getting there's a deal and there's a, you know, there's a side-by-side comparison and and there's you know, a little quick hitter, two question Q and A, and there's a quote, and there's it's just amazing yeah. how much they yeah. fit in. Yeah, and the amount of work that it was they had to put to do that every week. That's the thing that <clears throat> was sort of fascinating to experience for the first time. I bet as an intern and then working there is is the work to put together a a news and notes section, especially. Yeah, you know, it required its own team and it was enormously stressful the 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 you know the job of the news and notes editor was essentially the defense against the dark arts position at EW <laughs> a number of people that cycled through that because it was just grinding and yeah. you were often there like usually for the time that that I was at EW until vi- towards the very end the close was on Tuesday nights and so the number of times the news and notes editor would be there until 11 o'clock at night every Tuesday night to get the news and notes section closed was considerable. And so, you know, that's that I mean, that's part of what you kind of don't realize when you just are kind of reading through these all these little tiny bits is that each one of those has to be designed and copy edited and yeah. goes through multiple you know, editorial hands. And um, especially at that point at Time, Inc., there was a pretty rigorous fact-checking layer as well. And so there was a whole fact-checking team that was separate from everybody else that looked at every single story and fact-checked everything from the names to the any kind of like if you had an age in there, if you you made some sort of factual assertion, you had to come as as the writer reporter with backed up you had to have a, like a yeah. file of all of the information of how you got it that you would supply to the reporter who was the fact checker. And then they would keep that file. And then they had file cabinets in the library of the New wow. York office dating back many, 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 basically for as long as the statute of limitations for libel was. Wow. And then they would get rid of them. <laughs> um, it was like, it, it was, it was, you know, when you first experienced it, like, Wow. And especially as a kid, not realizing just the amount of work that went into sure. a tiny little like little capsule thing was yeah. just really striking. Uh, I want to skip ahead uh, before we get into the spring movie preview. I want to skip ahead to the, the movie reviews uh, towards the back of the book. Um, and then we can really delve into the spring movie preview stuff. Because uh, oh, like because I like I'm sure like you guys, when I would get my entertainment weekly, I often would skip to the review section. Of course. Just yes. to see what the grade... Oh, yeah. And yeah, not only skip to the reviews, but immediately zero in on what's the letter grade at the end. I was I'm part of the yeah. problem of uh, of modern day, uh, you know, Rotten Tomatoes culture where we only look at the grade. Um, this has been a decades-long issue that we have all... <laughs> we've faced. all contributed yeah. to, yes. Yes. Uh, so opening this week, we had uh, Colin Farrell and Bruce Willis in Hearts War. We had uh, Nicole Kidman in Birthday Girl, we had uh, uh, Todd Salons' storytelling. Those were kind of the big ones. There was a, a, a movie called The Sun's Room from um, Italian filmmaker Nani Moretti. Uh, Tom Dor winner. Uh, a movie, what did you say, Chris? 
Palm d'Or winner. Ah, uh, yes, Palm d'Or winner. We'll be talking about uh, uh, Cannes Film Festival when you talk about Panic Room. We're getting there, listeners, I promise. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, so February, back then, we, we were we were not quite the... Um, we were not quite liberated from the strictures of the release calendar yet. So February was still pretty wastelandy in terms of, yeah. um, you know, what was opening then. I never saw Hearts War. Did either one of you ever see that movie? No. 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 Yeah. Nope. Came and went. I know it was like, I like it was certainly heavily advertised. And this was the sort of Colin Farrell, I'm trying to think of like where in the Colin Farrell narrative Hearts War would have come. Minority Report was later this year, and Daredevil wouldn't be for another year after this. So I'm trying to sort of like map this onto like the sort of the early Colin Farrell years of uh this was when they started just sort of pairing him with as many uh veteran A-list actors as possible to sort of see what would happen. They had, he's in a Pacino movie. He's in a Bruce Willis movie. He's in a Tom Cruise movie. And we'll sort yep. of see how it goes. And yep. results were mixed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Never saw this one. Chris, you saw storytelling uh, recently. I saw you logged that on Letterboxd kind of recently. Right? Yeah. I did all of the salons during quarantine at some point. Storytelling's not a good one. I definitely saw storytelling, and I don't remember a ton about it. But this was his follow-up to happiness. Lisa's generous in her review. Uh, yeah, uh, and, uh, what is that? A B minus from Lisa Schwartzbaum for for storytelling. I've also never seen Birthday Girl, which I feel a little bit of a shame for because uh, uh, it is Nicole Kidman, and I do love her. That also got a B minus from Lisa, Lisa Schwartzbaum. Yeah, not really a whole lot I'm... of A's in this uh, in this time of the calendar. No, the... No, the only A was for the Suns Room. I'm also obsessed with the Critical Mass. Box, oh my god! Which is, which I wanted to bring up Critical Mass as well. Yeah, which 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 was the you know the the precursor to uh, Rotten Tomatoes and 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 Metacritic. Yeah, for sure. Another another example of UW pioneering us into a worse place, perhaps. But um, the <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, the the you know you already said this over text, I think. Uh, Joe, but the A plus that Roger Ebert gave Monsters Ball just that like, was the first thing I zeroed into when I yeah. saw that grid. Yeah, because also there was I think only once in the history of Entertainment Weekly did the film critics give the EW critics give a movie an A plus like at the very 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 beginning of its right. run, and then since then it was almost, it was basically a rule that they would never do it again. And so to see it here, it starts like just to see an A plus in a movie context in EW was it was just like wow that's that you is could rare. see it sometimes because there's also uh, who is it that gives an A plus in Black Hawk Down uh, Joanna Connors oh that's uh, right the Cleveland Plain Dealer gave <laughs> Black Hawk Down an A plus the the reviled ones of this month were Snow Dogs which is that Cuba Gooding Jr. or am I mistaken yeah I think so. And then a movie called Slackers. And initially, when you see that, you're like the Richard Linklater one that that uh, was so influential. That is Slacker. Slackers. Now, this is, is the Tom Green one, right? I believe so. It's Jason Schwartzman. Um, who else is in this movie? Devin Sawa, Jason Siegel, Jamie King, Laura Prepon, Nat Faxon, and Jim Rash. I don't know if Tom Green is in this. I think you might be thinking of Road Trip. 
or oh, okay. um, essentially yeah. very the same similar. sort of like very yes. similar, very yeah. similar vibe. I yes. Uh, very reviled. I think it also gets like, I think that also showed up in the hot sheet as kind of a punchline. Um, this was sort of the, the, uh, the designated bad movie of that moment. I also want to shout out Todd McCarthy for giving the Mothman prophecies an A minus. Good for you. I liked, <laughs> I liked the Mothman prophecies. I, I was happy with that one. Um, I am Sam Sometimes also got the most a pretty mind boggling. Go ahead. I was going to say, my, I am Sam also got a pretty solid uh, streak of uh, D's and uh, uh, I see an F in there. So, yeah. This yeah. is where my the Clark EW readers could really skew the critical mass because <laughs> they give I am Sam a B, basically yeah. rescuing its grade. But then no, they do things the, like... The EW readers is not part of the average. The, oh, that's yeah. interesting. Inside yeah, the average, right. The average is, is, is only for the critics... And then the and then the EW readers is outside of that. Um, this and doing this was the job of the movie's editorial assistant and the um, associate editor who was assigned this section. They always had to update it, and and part of the job was to make sure that all of these different critics sent in their letter grade right. for the movie, right? Um, so that you know, because if you know Roger Ebert gives a movie four stars, that could be an A or that could be an A plus, right? So right. you had to you had to be sure. Very proto Rotten Tomatoes, uh, yes. uh, very much so. Yeah. All right. So I would highly encourage EW readers to go back and watch A Beautiful Mind again and try to justify that A minus <laughs> for real. <laughs> and I'm just going to be jumping in with with very nerdy EW tidbits. So uh, this is just, this just is why this we're is. so excited to have you here. This is why you are a gift, a blessing. All right. So the spring movie preview specifically. So, Adam, you you said you have some uh, insider info on how these movie previews were assembled. And I am all ears because this is fascinating to me. The thing that that sort of jumps out to me about this is that um, there's the lead story. The cover yes. story, which is the which is Panic Room, yes, which is essentially uh, a two page feature, a four page feature with photo, with photographs, but two pages of uh, or actually no, just three, three pages, two of them with text and one with a giant portrait of Jodie Foster, yes, um, uh, and then the rest of the issue is done in a somewhat haphazard order. It's just 25 movies that are that EW's editors decided were worth highlighting. Right. It's not it's but not in, in chronological the way the fall movie preview would go month by no, month. No, it's not or the summer preview. This yeah. is, you know, so it's it's in just random order, not alphabetical, not there every movie here has has the buzzometer, which was an attempt by the editors to <laughs> gamify the the previews, but you know, no like the only like it's from zero to ten, but really it's only from five to nine. No movie gets worse than a five also, in the buzzometer or higher than a nine. Nobody ever paid attention to that no. part of the write-up. No. Too is the other thing. It was like it was just a like a weird design. Like, I hear I see what you're talking about with fonts too here, Adam. They really are kind yeah. of all over the map. They went. They, there are four separate fonts uh, of use in this. Uh, Just in movie titles and, alone, yeah, yeah, and and this would something that they would do. The designers would do was that they would create a uh, there. There would be the fonts that they use in the issues all the time, and then there would be the preview issues would get 
a special design yeah. profile where they would choose usually it was just two but here they went hog wild and had four separate a scripty font and then two different serif fonts and one sans serif font and um it and you know just to make it more visually interesting I chaotic guess. yeah but, yeah, Chris, we'll have to put some of these up on the uh, on the Tumblr page when this episode goes live. Yeah, because, you're going uh, to have gladly. It's hard yeah. to describe it. Yeah, but the thing that really so the, the the my point here though is you know the summer preview and the fall preview are the were the two two of the most popular issues that EW puts out. Right, they were double issues, which means that they had. Uh, they covered t- two weeks worth, and they had m- many, many more pages and many, many more ads. Yeah, because I, there was a you know the the ad side could sell against the issue because it was always so well. You know the new sand sales were always higher for it. Sure, and it was always very, very well read. Sure, the spring movie preview because of what you alluded to earlier, Joe, which is that at the time you know you know. February, March, April were yeah. true dumping grounds yeah. where movies that weren't really that studio did not have a lot of confidence in that they thought might have worked in a different time frame. And there's a, several movies like that, like Rollerball. Yes, is, is the second movie <laughs> listed here that was supposed to come out in the summer of 2000 and one and got pushed to February of 2002. Probably when the studio saw it and was like, "This is a big old turkey. We're yeah. not gonna." We're not going to spend a lot of much, as much money as we would on the marketing, and we're just going to release it quietly in February. But EW had to try to sell all of these movies as like worth your attention, mm. so they kind of put it together this way. But I'm I'm getting a little off the field. The summer and the fall preview issues were organized by month chronologically. Yeah. So there would be the May section, the June section, the July section, and the August section, and then yeah. the September, October, November, and December sections. And each month, there was a cover story for uh, the biggest movie or yes. one of the big movies of that season. The politics of that was endlessly fascinating to me as a reader, yes. I will say that. Yes. Well, it was, also, it was part of it was, you know, who could we get exclusively that wasn't going to be on the cover of Premiere yeah. or was going to be on the cover of Rolling Stone or on the cover of uh, or like got a big, splashy New York Times feature. Yeah. So they needed it needed to be an exclusive cover. So that sometimes limited the options if another if a star or a, a movie had already been sort of dedicated to a different publication. But generally speaking, especially during this period, EW got first pick usually. Yeah. And then each month had its own separate major feature to open the month. And then each month had a sort of further sort of breakdown of movies and importance based on the amount of words of and real estate in, on the page afforded to them. And internally, the way this was discussed was there was the lead for the month, and then there were the A movies, the B movies, and the C movies, and the D movies. Right. And the A movies got, it, and it, it unfolded as you would expect. The A movies often got their own page, um, and usually there would be one to two A's per month. Yeah. And then there'd be the B movies that would be the bulk of the preview, which would be sort of you get, you know, 200, 250 words, maybe 175 words per preview. And you'd usually have two of them per page. And then you'd have the C's, which would be the sort of smaller capsules that would be you'd get you'd have like room for one quote. Right. And it would be all kind of stacked together. Right. And then there would be the D's. 
And the D's were like all of the sort of small like indie releases, especially that were also opening in February or in September, yeah. rather, or whatever. <laughs> in yeah, September yeah, yeah, of yeah. like, yeah. yeah. And they get like, they, those would have no lumped in like one C of like yeah. one giant graph, basically. Right? Yeah, one giant paragraph. They'd get one sentence or maybe even just a clause, depending. On well, and if you notice, not to interrupt you, Adam, but if you notice in yeah. this particular spring movie issue, uh, both Itumama Tambien and My Big Fat Greek Wedding get that treatment in this. Uh, you are movie. already way ahead of me. Okay, was, sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry. I was gonna say no, 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 no. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah. So like the, so in this issue, there there's the there's the cover which is Panic Room. Then there's 25 movies that get essentially a uh, B entries, B right. sized entries. Right. And then there are. Um, then there's a section at, towards, at the very end that are, that's not all, a month-by-month guide to the other films headed your way. Why? And, and that's not all is in like 17 fonts. And then a month-by-month <laughs> guide true. to other films headed your way. It's like a ransom note, Adam. It's like yeah. somebody yeah. like cut little letters out of uh, exactly. of a circus magazine. And they, yeah. yeah. And then... And then, and then the 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 deck, a month by month guide to other films headed your way, is all in one font, except for the word films, which right. is in a different font and a different color, purely for design. I, mean, I guarantee you that was a design like yeah. design needed that to be differentiated in some way. And so the yeah. editor was like, I don't know, make films stand out because it's a movie preview, <laughs> sure. And so then, and so then each of these, um, and so then then this is brought. Spoken down by months. So then it finally is in chronological order. Yes. And these are essentially sort of glorified deeds. Usually each one of these would have had a quote. You would have had to have gone, called the director or the star and done like a 10 minute interview from which you pulled a single quote that, and that would be all you would use of that interview until they started repurposing them for the internet in the 2000s. Um, the uh, and in 2010s especially, but not even that much. You you do this full interview and you pull one quote out of it, and that would be what you'd use for the C. This doesn't even have that. These are there are no quotes. This is just some poor writer had to probably reach out to the publicists for every single one of these movies to get like a synopsis and like boilerplate language, and then rewrite it in their own word in their own voice. And then at the very end of that, there's plus, and then then you've got your D's. And and the thing that just jumped out to me was the plus at the the last movie listed as the plus for March is Itumama Tambien. Yep. And the lat and I think one of the last movies is listed as the plus for April, right? No, no, it's it's one of the first, and the, is in the plus is my big fat Greek wedding. The two biggest movies of that of that season. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ultimately, I mean, my big fat wedding didn't become a big deal until the summer, but still, like, but it it's made just so hilarious. much money, and and, each, yeah, and they're both Oscar nominees. Yeah, and they would both yeah. end up being Oscar nominees. Yeah, that yeah. I I definitely that jumped out to me, um, because that's the you know that's the hindsight. Uh, you know, those are the gold nuggets that you find in this hindsight of just like what did yeah. we see coming, what did we not see coming. That's why these old EW issues are such sort of fascinating time capsules in that way. Um, I also yeah. wanted to mention just the fact that, like, the the publicity stills that would accompany these were, mm-hmm. again, the only way we could find images from these movies forever. And so for mm-hmm. months, these movies would exist as, like, one 
image. You sort of get that, I guess, still mm-hmm. nowadays of like, you know, they'll release. But like now they do, uh, for most movies at least, they do this sort of like staggered release of like a little bit more info, a little bit more info. And back then, yeah. I was just like, you were working on that same shot of uh, Aaliyah sucking on Stuart Townsend's chest in in Queen of the Damned. You know what I mean? For just like yeah. for for months, yeah, yeah, yeah. for weeks and months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Towards that by the time I made it to EW uh on staff in 26 in 2006, that had become more of an issue because there was a great deal more art that was online. Sure. And so part of the negotiation was we need an image that Exclu- is exclusive. not going to be anywhere yeah. else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even yeah. if it was like for like a C entry. Sure. If you wanted an image in EW, it had to be an image that wasn't going to go everywhere else. And usually, yeah. unless it was like for a big movie. And the other thing that sort of jumped out to me, I'm getting so nerdy. I'm so I'm, I'm so I excited. Love I, this. I this absolutely movie. love this. Yeah. Um, is is like, so the, the, uh, the E.T., the extraterrestrial 20th anniversary re-release where they right. redid all of the visual effects. Right. Um, that gets a sort of a C entry here. And you would sort of be like, wow, really? Because that seems like that's going to be a big deal. Well, that's because there was a cover story f- coming for that like a month later. Uh, and that's also something sometimes what would happen is a movie. If you knew if the editors already knew that there was a cover for a movie coming along, it wouldn't necessarily get as much real estate in the preview right. issue because they they didn't want to blow sure. their, uh, you know, all of the info that they were going to get sure. um, uh, on just the on the preview. That's also so, fascinating, Adam. God, I love that. Nerdy, nerdy. Just. No, I love that. Um, the other thing that jumped out at me going through the twenty-five, well, you know, twenty-five, and then all the other movies, all the all the movies yeah. cited for the preview, but the ones yes. especially that get the write-ups. Uh, obviously, in uh, February of two thousand two, we're only a few months removed from nine eleven. This is when you start getting the movies that were pulled from release calendars in the fall of twenty or two thousand one. Uh, for post 9-11 sensitivities are now starting to come back. There are six movies, I think I counted, five movies um, that were... At least one of them was pulled not was pulled serendipitously. It had, it had not necessarily been pulled because of 9-11. It was pulled in advance and it ended up working in its favor. It would not, it would have been pulled. Which one, wait, which one, which one is that? I can't remember which, I can't, well, the, you know, Queen of the Damned was pulled. I think yes. initially because of Aaliyah's yes. death. Yes. But then um, there was another movie. Well, can you say what you're going to say, Joe? So, right. So Collateral Damage was sort of the famously uh, pulled one. That was the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that um, I can't remember exactly what from it was like. If whether there was if like. There, I think there's just a terrorist plot and his family is killed and it was just like. There's a bomb on a plane or something. It, it, it involves a bomb and a plane. Yeah. I, most capacity. of these things were like if there was violence happening on an airplane or any kind of uh, kind of thing like that. Um, the Barry Sonnenfeld movie, Big Trouble, had been set for a September 21st premiere and they had to cut out um, essentially just like a, a terrorism plot that had to do with an airplane. Um, the one that I found the most interesting was the time machine. The, um, that, that actually think was what that I think was what, what I was referring to. I think it was pushed mm-hmm. not because of, uh, I don't know if it was pushed because of nine 11. I think it was pushed because it had some production shenanigans. Well, yeah, they, yeah. they say in the write up that it was, uh, it was 
bumped the week after September 11th, but it was bumped oh, right. nominally to distance it from Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings, which were both debuting at the end of 2001. But they also say there was a shot of a falling chunk of moon slamming into the World Trade Center in that movie. That was cut yeah. out. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, that's that. That's grim. I, I would say, having been in this business now, that um, that was not, like, that's an easy c- shot to cut. Yeah. The reason it was pushed was because it was a piece of shit. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, collateral <laughs> and, and damage, too. It I wasn't imagine. pushed because they're, like, worried that Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings were going to steal its thunder. Yeah. They, they pushed it because they needed to, uh, they didn't want to spend the money they would need to spend to make it yeah open against you know it in that time so yeah it's they it got pushed because it was not good. that movie did and get one oscar nomination am i wrong uh uh geez. makeup I yes think. thank you um it was one of those ones where it was like two nominees and the time machine was one of them um yeah. the other one that got pulled was john q the uh, denzel washington uh, movie where he takes a hospital hostage to get health care for his sick son and uh in the write-up it's it said basically that it was a strategic decision that they didn't think that audiences at that time would be uh sympathetic to a person who takes people hostage so it ended up opening uh in the spring and oh in february yeah so um uh what else what did you guys pull from these uh from these spring preview the, the the only one i really want to talk about is the sweetest thing entry which comes right after the john q entry because yes. i'm just going to read it i'm going to read it because it's ridiculous all right it is <laughs> it is ridiculous and i just need i need people to hear purge it from how, your mind yeah <laughs> yeah it's 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 just what yeah you'll understand why okay so <clears throat> The Sweetest Thing, starring Cameron Diaz, Christina Applegate, Selma Blair, written by Nancy Pimentel, directed by some guy named Roger Cumble. R.I.P. Like, R.I.P. his career. <laughs> I don't think he did anything after this. Um, okay. Fed up with love, a young woman, Diaz, must get back on the horse. The horse in this case being 61's Thomas Jane. Helping her into the stirrups is a friend, played by Applegate, who suggests the obligatory road trip. But don't be fooled by the seeming cliches. Quote, it's not You've Got Mail, averse Applegate. You're not going to see a sweet romantic comedy. Director Robert Cumble, Cruel Intentions, elaborates, There are a lot of outrageous things that women have never done in a movie. Put it this way, Cameron's character doesn't know what a glory hole is. Un- unquote. And then this is where I, this is when I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> in, the, in the write-up it says, um, dot, 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 we don't either. What is it? What? I'm not going to tell you, he says, and oh then let's God. slip a hint. Chicks going to a disgusting truck stop bathroom and using the men's room because they can't use the women's room. Hmm, dot, dot, dot. Applegate confirms that the mood is more fairly brothers than Efron sisters, but won't elaborate on the glory hole business either. Quote, it's one of those moments that's best left unsaid, unquote. She also notes that there are no, there's no violence or nudity in the movie, there's there's some cursing, she says. That should be our whole publicity campaign. There's some cursing. There's a glory hole. I I just I just <laughs> quite a I, quote. I I knowing the who was editing the magazine right. at that time. Right, you're there lying. There's no right. way right. on 
that any single person involved with that write up had no like right did not know and if you didn't you could just like holler was. across the room and find some yeah. homosexual who did you know what i mean like yeah, yeah. and so like <laughs> it just the the idea that like that's how they decided to frame it is yes. just it's so it's so outre that we don't even know what they're talking about and we couldn't bother looking it up so yeah um yeah scandalous scandalous this i should movie has the most daring sexual hijinks you've ever seen mouth stuff <laughs> yeah exactly. i should say i looked it up roger cumble did direct a cruel intentions as that write-up said yes that's true uh sweetest thing the movie just friends the one with uh, uh <gasps> part of it is Anna ryan says britney spears Arn- uh, yes oh, no uh, my husband's gonna be so upset with me that i oh. didn't he loves that movie <laughs> well and he then it really that movie it did fall off Colin College road trip with Raven Simone and Martin Lawrence after that. Uh, Furry Vengeance with Brendan Fraser uh, after that. Um, A Christina Milian movie called Falling in Love in like I-N-N. And then something in 2020 called After We Collided. So uh, yeah, so you weren't wrong that his career uh, fell off, but it fell off after he made Just Friends. So uh, yes, um, yes. Anyway, Chris, what jumped out at you from uh, from the spring movie preview? Looking through all of these blurbs, there was one that the title fully jumped out at me as like, even I, who, you know, was an EW acolyte and do this podcast, yes. had never heard of before until I read the blurb and it was the first Project Greenlight movie. Ah, Stolen, Stolen Summer. Right. Yep. Yep. Yes, cursed. When Project Greenlight movies earned enough merit to be in a movie preview. And I imagine the yep. second season one, Battle of Shaker Heights, probably also would have ended up in uh, a preview issue as well. That Those two. Yep. Yeah. Oh, Project Greenlight. Uh, the ones that jumped out to me, I love that Kissing Jessica Stein is in there. I That sort of the, you would be able to find certain indie gems that were getting uh some level of push and they would be yep, sort of mm-hmm. elevated to um a, a certain level in EW and that was always fascinating to me. Um it's an interesting spring. It's like there's not it's not like wall to wall bangers, but like no. uh Roger Michelle's Changing Lanes, which I've never seen but everybody tells me I should see it because it's supposed to be like more interesting than um it's sort of perch would suggest and i do love the films of the late roger michelle um blade 2 opened during this stretch uh soderbergh's sort of ill-fated uh, full frontal which i didn't like very much but like that's an interesting movie to open uh crossroads I covered of course that. sorry go I ahead i covered say, that movie. when you get the crossroads <laughs> yeah I, well, I was gonna say i covered full frontal for ew in the uh, Dear Departed Internet section, oh. uh, be- because they had a they had a website that they were updating while they were making the movie, ah. and so um, I I pitched. This was back when I was done as an intern, and I was freelancing for them from my parents' house in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, in the sort of like eight month period where I was still living at home before uh-huh. I came moved out to L.A. and um, and I got Steven Soderbergh on the phone. Oh and I had been communicating to everyone that I was writing about the website, but somehow that did not get passed along to Soderbergh. So I get him on the phone and I say, hey, so I'm writing the story on your website. I wanted to talk about it. And there's this long pause and then a mordant chuckle. And he says, 
who thought it was a good idea for you to talk to me about the website? <laughs> like with like such disdain. And then of course he did the interview and was very charming and, and sure. thoughtful. And sure. Actually knew more than he was letting on. But it was just like, oh, you funny. know, when I'm you're, when you're 22 years old and you're you, you're getting a massive director on the phone and yeah. it starts with that. It was just oh boy, the mortifying. website. Yeah. Yes. But 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 you know, besides that, let's let's of course let's talk about Britney Spears. <laughs> yeah, Crossroads <laughs> opened. Uh, <laughs> In the spring of 2002. I like that uh, because of the way that EW formats their uh, capsules that they do include the writer. So we do get to, of course, be reminded that Shonda Rhimes did write uh, Crossroads. This is a very important fact. Um, yeah, it's an interest. I don't know. It's an interesting. Sometimes I wonder is just like should like every time I see a, a sort of grouping of movies in a historical context, my mind always goes to like, should I do a project where I like watch a bunch of these and I watch them? Just like it wouldn't be the worst time. I don't know. Like Murder by Numbers is a pretty cool movie. I like that. I do love kissing Jessica Stein. Um, I don't know. Death to Smoochie is a weird one. It's it's an interesting group of movies. I don't know. This also, I would also just note that this is also one of the preview issues where nothing gets a byline. All of the bylines. Yes, I tried to, I wanted to know who was writing some of these opinions on some of these things. Yeah. Yeah, And I didn't get it. And so you go, and so you you have to go to the very, very last page where there's a box that says written and reported by. Yeah. And in EW parlance, reported means fact checked. So there was, you know, because the writer did reporting by yeah. calling the people up and talking to them and yeah. then and then the and then there was a layer of fact checkers who yeah. basically re-reported the story so um that's what that refers to and it's it's yeah you know la- later on they stopped doing that as much yeah where you you started seeing bylines on every piece of writing and i'm not actually sure ex- exactly how that why how or why that change happened but yeah um this was one of those things where as a EW completist, I did sort of wonder, like, if I could tell yeah. who had written what. I also um, couldn't find and, a masthead yeah. in this in this issue, and a lot of the times when I oh. when I find an old EW is I go right to the masthead and see who was working there at the time because it's always yeah. it's always somebody you've heard of or sometimes you know, and uh, it's yeah. very interesting. Um, all right, anything else before we uh, fully do in earnest jump into Panic Room, which I'm very excited to do. Uh, anything else from the EW issue though, from uh, the the scans that I sent along? Um, nothing. No, I think we've. I think we've done a very good. Job. I think we have done an exhaustive job. I think we have done really great job. Think, and again, readers are like, wasn't this supposed to be about panic? Room? No. Like, listen, we, we are going to amply prepare our listeners for the fact that these are going to be half EW and half uh, movie uh, write up or uh, uh, roundups, and and we're just they know by now what time. we do in the month yeah. of May is get niche and weird. But anyway, now it is the time, Adam. We're going to talk about Panic Room at long last, the cover story for this issue of Entertainment Weekly, uh, directed by the great David Fincher, written by uh, David Kep. I don't know why I just put Kep there in the in the outline that he's apparently, um, you know, like Prince, a a mononym now. Uh, All right, Um, starring. God, there's this cast has no bad performances. This is what we're, we'll get into it, but like everybody in this is doing the job. Uh, Jodie Foster, yeah. Kristen Stewart, Forrest Whitaker, Jared Leto, Dwight Yoakam, uh, a handful of uh, uh, character actors who we'll definitely get into, premiered on March 29th, 2002. 
Adam, I'm going to pull out my brand yes. new iPhone that I just got today uh, to time you for a 60-second plot description. Oh, boy. I believe Here in we you. Here go. This, I, I, uh, I, I got this down to the wire, so let's see if I'm able to to do it. Let's let's see. It's Because there's it's deceptively a movie with a not a lot happens but there's a great deal of plot so and yeah you know it it's gonna take a yeah so we'll see how i will i do <laughs> all right i am ready when you are i will let you know when i yeah. start the clock all right ready adam and go jodie foster plays meg altman who moves into a huge brownstone on the upper west side with her daughter sarah played by kristen stewart amid her divorce from her husband stephen played by patrick bouchow the home has a panic room a sealed off vault in case of home invasion the night they move in one of the old owner's grandsons, Junior, played by Jared Leto, breaks into the house to get at the fortune secretly hidden inside the panic room. Junior enlists Burnham, played by Forrest Whitaker, a gentle man who works for the company that installed the panic room, and Raul, played by seconds. Dwight Yoakam, a sociopath who loves violence. They don't think the house is occupied yet, and when Meg hears them, she and Sarah lock themselves into the panic room. What follows is a crazy tense standoff. The men try to smoke Meg and Sarah out, but end up burning Junior. Junior gives up, but Raul kills him. Meg calls Stephen for help, but Stephen shows up and is savagely beaten by Raul. Ten seconds. Sarah has diabetes. When her blood sugar drops, Meg tries to get her insulin bag and Burnham and Raul get inside the panic room. They get the money, but when they try to leave, Meg and Seven fight back. Burnham almost escapes, but instead comes back to rescue Meg's family from being slaughtered by Raul. The police sweep in just in time. And Burnham is captured as the money flies out of his hands and into the wind. Very good. You went over, but it's fine. I love a plot description that ends with the Jennifer Lopez in Hustler shot. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Uh, Oh, God, all those bearer bonds are uh, are scattered to the Upper West Side. I walked past. I, I didn't. I had. I had bear bonds in an earlier version, and it took up too much time. So I, I got it. I walked past the address from this movie. Uh, I know they. I Fincher famously sort of constructed a a townhouse uh, set all his own to film in, but they do uh, say the address uh, when she calls the police. Um, uh, it's on. Is 90- it real? It's supposed to be on Ninety Fourth Street. There is a Thirty Eight uh, uh, West Ninety Fourth Street on. Uh, uh, that I walked past. It is a, you know, beautiful looking brownstone. I would, you know, as I tend to do when I walk around the Upper West Side, I just look at buildings and try and, you know, wish my way into uh, living there. Um, it's right, you know, half a block from the park. It's uh, it's a beautiful location. You can imagine why uh, somebody who is loaded with divorce money, like <laughs> Jodie Foster's character in this movie, uh, would love to uh, would love to live there. Just from the opening scene of this movie fucking rules. Just the, first of all, the opening yeah. credits are that, you know, floating font that exists within the city. That sort of uh, a visual effects trick that uh, I'm a simp for. Like, I look at that and I'm just like, oh, it just looks so pretty. It's just so. It's <laughs> and it's, so I think that was cool. one of the first times you'd ever seen that. That was one of yeah. the things that I remember vividly yeah. about that movie was that. It was a way to do opening credits that you had never seen before. Now it's, you know, everywhere. Yeah. But that was one of the first first attempts. And and they do such a good job of making it seem like the the credits are there in yep. the city. Yep. And it's also like because it's such a claustrophobic movie, it's also so interesting yes. to open that way. Yeah. Where you've got this sort of God's eye view of the full city. Yep. And uh, yeah, uh, and all these sort of like you know beautiful shots of of New York City architecture, and 
and then all in the bright sunshine, whereas the yeah, rest of the movie right. is in the dark pitch night. darkness. Yeah, and then yeah. you get the scene where they're uh, going to look at the place, and it's uh, Anne Magnuson is the uh, woman who plays the uh, the real estate agent who's showing Meg and uh, and Sarah Altman around, and she's. A scream. She's so funny. She keeps yelling at Kristen Stewart to like stop doing stuff, stop riding the scooter, stop riding the elevator. Um, she apparently. She's also, go ahead. She's Adam. also gossiping. She's gossiping. She's like she's like she's what, a it's delight. one of those. She's it's a it's a really stealth exposition job. Yes, because she basically lays out gives you all the info great, you need. Yeah, yeah, a great deal of the information about why. Junior is breaking into the house. Right. You find out. So that. Yeah. yeah. The previous tenant and what he did and how he had his money and that he was a yeah. sort of a, a shut in and a paranoid sort and all this sort of stuff. Uh, that actress is a sort of um, actress slash sort of performance artist nightclub performer she had been the only thing i had rem- i remember ever seeing her in was she was actually in the sitcom on abc from when i was a really little kid called anything but love that was like richard lewis and jamie lee curtis were this like central romantic couple in it um and she was kind of like the best friend she was the like um uh maybe like the the christine baranski and sybil kind of a thing but anyway she has this fantastic sort of acerbic presence um and then the guy showing the house is uh, Ian Buchanan, who I know from soap operas. He was Duke Lavery on General Hospital and mm-hmm. uh, and whatnot. But anyway, um, and then all of a sudden they're just like, and then they're in the house. You know, it's, it's one of the, the time moves just to get you to where you need to be uh, uh, in this, mm-hmm. which I which I really appreciate. And I love that, like, this all goes down on their first night in the house, too, which is... I think the fact that it goes da- it all goes down on their first night in the house helps cover up a lot of like potential room for plot holes not that this movie doesn't have a few but like the idea of why wouldn't jodie foster have like insulin anywhere in the house other than her daughter's room you know things like that but like well it allows that to have things like she hasn't set up the phone in the panic room yet you know what i mean mm -hmm. like that kind of thing so uh any anything the space more empty too to like have this more ominous feeling to it or like yeah yeah a grungier feeling where if they were fully moved in it would you know be more like warm and inviting yeah maybe they would have a fucking lamp somewhere yeah I think I, the one thing that also really struck me watching that is that once the plot really kicks in and and the men have invaded, there's no time for character development. Like there's you right. know there's barely like they 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 really work hard to give to figure out ways to dimensionalize, especially Forrest Whitaker's character Burnham, yeah, but also sort of provide a little bit more context for what Jared Leto is doing. Yes, but like. The so they they do take a, a, enough time to sort of get you inside the head of of Meg of Jodie Foster's character by showing you just how kind of at sea she is in like just starting her divorce like she's going back yes. to college she says yeah. you know she doesn't really seem to have she seems to have been like you know she's not that much older than her daughter so it seems like she married and her husband is much older than her right so it seems like she married young 
and didn't really define herself for herself. And like those are all things you kind of have to fill in yeah. as you're watching by with like little context clues. But what Fox, Jodie Foster's doing is at least putting you in the mindset of like this is a woman who is working so hard to be present for her daughter. Yes. But as otherwise kind of a mess. Well, and, and you'll get it in you know, little parts like when uh, when they're in the panic room and she's on the intercom trying to tell them to leave. And Kristen yeah. Stewart goes, uh, she's like, get out of my house. And Kristen Stewart goes, say fuck. And she goes, fuck. And she's just like, she's like, no, say get out of my fucking house. And it's such a great little economic way of like getting their vibe where like, yeah. you know, um, uh, Kristen Stewart's character, Sarah, uh, Sarah wants her to um, stand up for herself and be maybe be a little bit tougher. And she's the one who was like, dad's not going to come look for us as, you know, whatever the wife's name, she won't let him. Um, and then every once in a while, Jody will allow that, you know, that bit of steel to come out the, mo- the moment where she's on the phone and she goes, put him on the phone, bitch, like uh, to the, mm-hmm. um, to the new girlfriend is, I mean, it's, it's, you know, classic Jodie Foster, like, you know. The new girlfriend, voiced by Nicole Kidman, who was the original <gasps> actor supposed to play I didn't catch that. Yeah. Uh, Joe, I would also like to say, this definitely counts as a Nicole Kidman episode for us. Yeah. And I went and I checked our past episodes. No. Nicole Kidman has now had as many episodes of this podcast as Meryl Streep. Oh, fascinating. All right, I will update it. I did not uh, include her, but yes, it was a, a key voice performance. Um, well, this also, sort I, of... This is actually, this is as good a time as any for me to point out something that occurred to me. Go for it. So let me just ask you this, because yes. I, I I meant to look this up and, I, and, I, and I'm coming up short, so I'll just, I'll just say it. All right. So this movie shot in uh, the spring of 2001. Right, because Jody had to... And, uh, bail on the 2001 can jury she was going to be the yeah, can she, jury president and she had to she had yeah. to bail yeah she had to bail on it and and she had to bail on it because um nicole kidman was still recovering from the injury she incurred on making moulin rouge right and so and this movie is very physical and physically demanding and yes. so it just was not going to work for for nicole, and like nicole kidman rehearsed and yeah. it was like, you know, I think they shot even a little bit of the movie. I think that's right. And they just realized yes. they couldn't, they, it wasn't going to work. Yes. And Fincher has said that, like, Nicole's conception of the character was uh, much more sort of like a helpless, classically sort of helpless sure. woman who has to steal herself against yeah. what was what is happening. And, uh, and that's just not Jodie Foster's vibe. So they kind of re-envisioned the character to be sort of, a little bit different than that. More more Jodie Foster than Nicole Kidman at right. that time, especially. Right. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up, though, is when did the hours shoot? Um, That's a good question. The I know that it was kind of a late arrival and that, like, they didn't lock the movie until fairly late. Um, yes. So I would imagine it shot in 02. Okay. Well, I had wondered then if... That if she had done this movie, if she would have been precluded from doing the hours, um, and and then God forever changed, you know, the Ye- course of your lives. Um, Certainly, yeah. This is not forward. necessarily a what if scenario that we love here. 
That is fascinating, though, because then all that because that it also impacts Nicole's uh, Oscar history and yeah. and all of that. Yeah, that is pretty. But fascinating. it sounds like perhaps perhaps that's not the case. But I just had sort of like the timing is so close. Yes, these movies came out out the same. Oh yeah, year yeah, yeah. That yeah. like I had like I had wondered if there was. Well, I also imagine sort of like, that if the idea is that it's a lingering injury from Moulin Rouge and uh, and whatnot that she wouldn't have necessarily needed to do too much more recovery from that to film the hours, which is not as obviously physically demanding. No, um, she's not holding it, guns. Right. Maybe. Exactly. Um, I mean, like, I mean the, that the might cr- be what it's, what's in her pocket, but she's you know, <laughs> rifling around for all the time. She's, and you know, the current of that, of that stream she walks into is pretty. That's true. So That's true. Need, yeah. She needs strong ankles. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Stepping on those rocks. Yeah. Um, I want to get into some of the tidbits we get from the cover story, the EW cover story on this, um, which includes, it sort of leads with the anecdote that, um, she found out she was pregnant in the middle of the shoot and sort of, uh, uh, surprised Fincher with the knowledge of it. And at this point already, um, the troubled production narrative had sort of settled in. There was a lot, there was a challenging production. Fincher wanted to do a lot with this. Obviously he's an incredibly ambitious filmmaker. We mentioned the thing where he wanted to shoot it all in the complete dark. Um, and he's like, and just have little eyes like peering out, which is um, hilarious. And uh, obviously uh, I imagine pretty impossible to try and do. So, um, but also the fact that like, uh, switched cinematographers uh, halfway through. Darius Kanji, who was the cinematographer on Seven, um, started out and uh, was eventually replaced by Conrad W. Hall. Uh, had to build. He initially wanted to film it in an existing townhouse, and that proved to be uh, not feasible. So he built this, you know, sort of multi-story townhouse in a studio yeah. and and shot in that. Um, but so it looks wildly like the woman in the window house. I do have to say, kind of. I mean, uh, not not on that. Um, it's the skylight that makes you think of that. Um, yeah. Uh, but so the Foster, Jodie Foster telling him she's pregnant was sort of just like you know one more one more thing. And obviously, uh, eventually, try they tried to shoot it all uh, before she would be showing too much or wouldn't be able to do as much and and they didn't quite get there so they had to eventually stop production and wait for her to have the baby and then be ready to come back and do reshoots and then they got it all done but um the one thing that freaked me out besides the fact that it's one more uh, excuse to talk about flora plum because uh um <laughs> uh, jody was available to do this movie because uh, Flora Plum, her proposed uh, directorial uh, feature starring Russell Crowe and Claire Danes, uh, Crowe had hurt himself on uh, in rehearsals for that movie. So because of that injury delay, she was able to star in Panic Room. So it's all this weird, you know, moving parts. So in a world where Australians aren't getting hurt, <laughs> right? Yes. In movies, the fragility we have of Australia. Flora Plum and so Nicole Kidman in this accident movie. prone. Yes, my God. Um, but the thing that that I had never heard of before was the anecdote about how Jodie Foster was originally supposed to play the Sean Penn role in the game, David Fincher's uh, 1997 movie. And there was apparently a lawsuit about it, which I had no idea. Um, 
And I, I had no idea either about that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I looked this up. Apparently, she was originally supposed to play. Uh, it was he. She was originally going to be Michael Douglas's sister. Uh, Sean Penn eventually right. plays the uh, the brother in that. And uh, while there are uh, differing, some differing accounts, essentially, it seemed like the calculation was made by Fincher, by the studio, whatever that. Jodie Foster was too famous, essentially, to play such a secondary role that it was going to um, uh, pull focus or, you know, it would, you know, fuck the audience up in some way, which I don't necessarily disagree with. Sean Penn was pretty famous at the time, but I guess he's not like Jodie Foster famous. Different kind of famous. I mean, he's never been a box office draw. Right. That is very true. he hadn't won any of his Oscars yet. At that point. Right. So he had been he nominated still... for Dead Man Walking, and I think that was it by that point. So, yeah. yes. Um, and so they're they're trying to rewrite the thing. They were going to try and have her uh, character re-envisioned as his daughter, which I was initially like, hmm. And then I looked it up, and they are 18 years apart. So, like, that does, you know, works better than you think it would. Um, but, again, I don't think that solves that problem. So, eventually, they're trying to rewrite it, and it's and eventually it comes time where she's like, I got to make contact. So let's figure this shit out. And they didn't. And she has to uh, leave the production and go make contact. And I guess in the interim, the lawsuit essentially stated that like, she could have been making other movies at all this time that she was waiting to start making the game. So it was this sort of like lost uh, employment opportunity, whatever. And so the whole thing, it was a lawsuit with Polygram Pictures and it gets settled and, and uh, she can't talk about it in this uh, cover story issue. So she's like, funny story. Uh, Can't uh, talk about uh, what happened with the lawsuit, but apparently she and Fincher are fine because here she is in uh, in Fincher's next movie. So yeah, the, the the quote that's so sort of interestingly telling about that is you know the the, the story goes through all of that and then says uh, the quote is uh, David and I remained friends and were there where uh, and there were no hard feelings says Foster actually we are in perfect agreement on the whole thing. Which is like, what does that mean? Which is funny <laughs> that you don't get that uh, cor- a corroborating quote from Fincher about that. So I wonder yeah. if that's Jody being like, yeah. he agrees with me that I was right. And I imagine Fincher sort of like <laughs> getting the reaction shot of just sort of like looking down at his notes or whatever. Just like He's like, I'm not going to go there. Yeah. I'm just not going to go there. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that there might have been a conversation between uh-huh. Jeff Jensen and the editors about like, yeah, like what was Fincher's response here? And there was a, probably a lar- long back and forth on the absence of a Fincher quote there. I right. Would imagine. The other thing that I wanted to say about this uh, this piece really quick sure. is um, so going back to the pregnancy thing where it basically says that like very quickly they realized that what they'd have to do is because Jodie Foster has like a tank top, a tight tape yes. on for, yes. mo- for a lot of it that like she's like, guys, it's going to start showing. Yeah. So what are you going to do? And it's like, don't worry. They, you know, the story is like, don't worry. They get a sweater on her. And so I read this before I rewatched the movie. Sure. And I hadn't seen the movie in years and years and years. Yeah. And so all I kept doing was waiting for that for that sweater to show up and getting more and more tense about it because I was like, <laughs> she's going to start showing. Oh my god, she's going to get pregnant any minute. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and 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 it doesn't actually come in until very late in the movie. Oh my god. And so, so like like the last half hour, like it was not much. Yeah. And I was like, how much of the movie? Was she shooting right. while showing? 
and not having an ability covered up. I just that was. And just, they shot the movie in sequence too. Yeah. Wow. Just wild. Yeah. Just wild. You almost I I couldn't find anything on this, but I almost wonder if they shot it in sequence because her pregnancy happened. You know, to kind of mitigate. Yeah. Any type of continuity. That's issue. possible. Well, I mean, she and but she told them five weeks into filming, like it yeah. wasn't like they had right they had just started. Like, right, they were well into it. There was no going back. Yeah, it's also you know also the, there's this sort of understory of like she's you know one of the famous glass closeted lesbians yes. in Hollywood. Right. Yeah. They, the yeah. story. The story sort of says, like her first son, she declines to discuss paternity, and that's it, and that's yeah. that, and they don't go anywhere else. Yeah. But like any any knowing reader sort of understands innately what was going on there, which was that she had started trying to get pregnant before she had made the movie, and it wasn't right. taking. Right. And then, but it's just, it's sort of wild to me that she's like she agrees to do this action packed movie, knowing yeah that she's she's also in the process of IVF. That's it's just very yeah it's just really fascinating the whole thing. She is a a real interesting character. I find her endlessly fascinating. Um and and I that's, you know, that's all part of it. Yeah. This was her first movie, uh first released movie since doing Anna and the King in 1999. I th- I believe Dangerous Lives Which of Alter Boys was the first movie after Contact. Yes, so it was 2 years from that and then and then 3 years. I believe Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys had played Sundance. At the beginning of 2002, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but that wouldn't get released until maybe the summer, uh, definitely after yeah. uh, Panic Room. So, um, yeah, she was, it's not like we were getting a ton of Jodie Foster. And this is, of course, Fincher's follow up to Fight Club, which is a movie that was never going to get Oscar nominations, even though I would argue that on a couple uh, fronts, it probably it did get one. <laughs> oh, Sound? I believe for punchy punchy, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do that makes believe. sense. Um, but uh, I would have nominated Helena Bonham Carter in a second. I think she uh, rules in that movie. Um, but that was a movie that got great, even though there was like you know there was some divisiveness about that movie. I think in general that movie in that immediate sort of couple of years since. Uh, it was sort of widely accepted that it was this kind of visionary achievement. And because of its subject matter and because of sort of its tone, it was never going to be an Oscar nominee that year. But I think then looking at what's next for Fincher, I think that movie still leveled him up in terms of esteem and, and reputation within Hollywood. Yeah. It took I a mean, minute, but yeah. I Cause think I mean that- like it, it on top of the movie being caustic, you know, that was when he was still kind of more of a bad boy, too. Sure. Panic Room, however, I think is the one that kind of establishes his uh, reputation as a perfectionist that yeah. pisses a lot of people off. And, yeah. like, of course, there are some of the production troubles here, like Darius Conchi quitting the movie and, you know, yeah, the, the kind of overruns that this movie had had to that really establish that in a way that, you know, you don't hear about people being pissed off about, you know, yeah, seven requiring so many takes. Yeah. And it took him another five years to put out another movie when, when right. Zodiac comes out in 2007. And then right. and then finally his Oscar movie in 2008 with Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Right. I, I rewatched Alien 3. Ah. Uh, a couple weeks ago for uh, for a different 
podcast. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, one that we've all been on before. And the Charles uh, S. Dutton podcast. Yes, I know it well. Exa- yeah. Exactly. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it was I didn't make it through the whole thing. <laughs> um because it's 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 truly a bad movie and what's shocking about it is it's so sloppy yeah there's such sloppiness to the filmmaking to the camera placement to the editing to the way that scenes unfold it's like action sequences that should be so good and clear as to what's happening are so sloppily done and this was that was 10 years before panic room and I, I've wondered since, and I'm sure Fincher has talked about this because he's a very happy, like he loves to be very candid in his interviews. Yeah. But I, I wondered if part of that exacting perfectionism came from his experience making Alien 3, which... Well, he's uh, like pretty... level of interference that he received He's pretty vocal movie. about how much he hated that experience making that movie and yeah. um, that he wanted to like quit and of course you know you take all of those sort of statements with a grain of salt but like clearly he uh uh was not happy with the experience of making that movie and yeah so now he's sort of evolved into this kind of control freak it's interesting to think of like what how how do we conceive of david fincher right now because he's you know he's making movies like mank right which is like the fact that the mank narrative during that oscar season was that it was the it was the establishment choice right it was the um the the oscar bait of that season and it's funny to think of that in the context of the guy who made 7 and mm-hmm. you know uh, flight club and zodiac and for the longest time it just seemed like he was going to be the outsider to this process for so long. I think well, I it mean, got that, like, it was dubbed, you know, that stodgy choice to begin with because of certain contextual things of what that movie is or, yeah. like, where it's set. But, like, that's still a pretty strange movie. Oh, that's still a pretty, yeah. at its core, anti-establishment movie. I love and Mank. I think a lot of people just never really looked at it People just in that way. Yeah. People just think that it, people thought that it was the boring period drama choice. Um, well... I mean, to be fair, it was the boring period drama choice of that year. I, I mean, I, I, I <laughs> because it was all, the only one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, that that's also true. I think that what's interesting about Fincher is that he kind of launders his reputation with the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and then following yeah. that up immediately with The Social Network. Yeah, because both of those movies were big, big Oscar movies. There yeah. was a there's an alternate universe where The Social Network wins Best Picture that sure. year. Yeah, and. Um, and then the girl with the dragon tattoo got Rooney Mara an Oscar nomination for a performance that it was like truly one of the most not Oscar Beatty performances that have been nominated, I think, in a very long time. And so it won that editing Oscar. It probably was the next one in line to be a Best Picture nominee. Yeah. Getting and her so, that Oscar nomination almost feels like. You know, he couldn't get the the you know Helena Bonham Carter or Edward Norton nominated for a Fight Club, but like the yeah. then all of a sudden karmically it came back around and he was able to make it happen for Rooney. And then you know, Gone Girl, everyone thought was going to be a big Oscar yeah. movie, but it only Rosamund Pike ended up sort of getting anything out of that. So right. it's you know, I think that 
in the 2010s, he had established himself as kind of an Oscar-y director, despite his earlier work. Yeah. So by the time Mank rolls around, because he'd been rolling around in Netflix land for a lot of the 2010s, uh, with House of Cards and Mindhunter, yeah. especially, um, like he makes Mank and it's, you know, it's the the movie about movie making. It's, you know, it's, right. it's, the, it's doing the all the things and, that, that Oscar movies tend to do. Yeah. Yeah. Even and though so, I agree with you, Chris, that like there's a lot of idiosyncrasies in that movie. Like, yeah. Boring ones. No, boring Adam. No, we, boring, we disagree on Boring, this. boring movie. Vetoing you. It's 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 uh, far from my favorite Fincher, but I do think there's interesting stuff going on in that movie. Yeah. Sure. Sure. For five minutes of it. Sure. <laughs> Can we talk about the Kristen Stewart of it all? 11 years old when she yes. makes this movie. That's amazing. Unreal. Eleven I mean, years I, old and like fifteen by the time that filming ends, <laughs> judging just on appearances. She's mesmerizing in it. She in is. A way that I think is, um, I thought it was distracting in a way that the movie doesn't ever intend. That it's that she she becomes who she is now, and so I'm watching it completely through that lens, and so I'm paying more attention to her. Than I think I'm supposed to. I think I'm supposed to be paying attention to Jodie Foster, right? And I'm always watching her because I'm just like, this is Kristen Stewart. You guys, you guys, you don't understand. You don't. This is Kristen Stewart. You don't understand. It's also funny between this movie and Contact. This sense of Jodie Foster with a with Jenna Malone, uh, right? And Jenna Malone is her younger self in that one, and 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 not her daughter. But it's still the sense of like Jodie Foster and a child actor. Where in Contact, it was. People couldn't stop talking about how what great casting that was with Jenna Malone and how she's, you know, fits perfectly as a young Jodie Foster. And I think in this one, it's that like it was very uh, vibe forward in in Panic Room where it was just like, yes, like I the vibe of this kid is completely like I completely buy her from like minute one as Jodie Foster's kid. Like that's yes. 1000%. Such good casting. And there are shots of them where it's you 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 do a double take cuz it almost feels like Fincher was trying out the Benjamin Button visual effects early on. <laughs> <laughs> because she just looks so much like a younger Jodie Foster. It's yeah. just bizarre. It's this weird fortuitous thing too because she wasn't cast as Jodie Foster's kid. She was cast as Nicole Kidman's kid. Right. Where it's yeah. like even their uh was it their variety uh actress on actors this year together. Yeah. Did they talk about like, it? Yeah. I met you on Panic Room. God, yeah. Oh, I love they that. Talk shit. about it. They oh, do talk about it and it's fascinating. And, you know, honestly, she also looks a lot like Jody, uh, like Nicole Kidman. So I think we would have been having a similar conversation sure. if that had been the case. She just has that sort of, like, both Nicole Kidman and Jodie Foster are that sort of, like, fine-boned, flinty, sure. sort of somewhat chilly actor. Sure. Uh-huh. And that that Kristen Stewart has really taken the mantle of. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's really fascinating to see that sort of torch being passed here. Yeah. I'd kill to see Kristen Stewart in another Fincher movie. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. For sure. That would be yes, amazing. Make absolutely. that happen. I also love that at the very beginning, when they first uh, are shown the panic room, um, that uh, Kristen Stewart's character immediately is like, my room. I want to live here. And then she totally gets stiffed <laughs> from it. Like, uh, uh, Jody takes it for herself. Um, classic and, mom. And P.S. P.S. Uh, Fincher's upcoming movie is. Uh, more in the vein of his, I just I just want to round out this thought. Oh yes, I, go for, I, yes. I, 
Um, it's The Killer, um, right. written by Andrew Kevin Walker, right. the guy who wrote uh, Seven. Seven and yeah. has a brief cameo in uh, in uh, Panic Room. He's the guy in the bedroom across the alleyway. Oh, is that who he place. is? Okay. That's they're trying is. to SOS him. Yeah. Yeah, they're trying to SOS him. And, and, and you know, you see – and, like, watching that scene, it's another example of – of the actors doing a really good job selling a moment that if you think about it too hard, doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Because if you're flashing SOS and then you see the person noticing you, then I would start like moving the light around more. Right. Like just like trying to make clear that there's a person here. They don't play that very well. Also, they don't play that. I am that guy. Movie's best joke though. That character is, that's the character I would play in Panic Room is, is, is that guy the guy who looks at somebody flashing a light doesn't know morse code so i'm just like i i don't know and then it stops and i'm just like well it stopped and then it's just like curtains shut and i don't have to think about that anymore so uh yeah i just need to go i'm, I'm useless I having a really good dream I'm yeah having a really good dream and i want to go back to it right I'm go yeah back to bed. i'm useless in a rescue scenario on that one yeah so it's but it's uh, it's called The Killer and it stars Michael Fassbender and Tilda and Tilda Swinton. Swinton. I'm very excited for this movie. Yeah, that yeah. should be really you know that yes. should be really good. I'm very excited. Um, let's talk about the bad guys in this then. So we've got the trio of uh, Forrest Whitaker, Jared Leto, and Dwight Yoakam. Obviously, the the three actors who you think of when you think of. Uh, you know, them together. <laughs> they're a natural trio. Um, I love the fact that the movie really capitalizes on the sort of uh, mismatched nature of all of them, where they just, they are never once a team. They are a collection of three individuals who, and it's, and it enforces the kind of slapdash nature of, uh, of Jared Leto's plot in this thing, where he was just like, you know, you really didn't put a whole ton of thought into this where, you you know, you found Forrest Whitaker, who is apparently had worked for the company that installed the panic room. And so that's why he's on the team. He's he's yeah. the guy who knows well, the, how to get into the, it. The, the main thing is so he's he had spent a lot of time nurse, ma- uh, you know, nurse mating his grandfather Leto did, and yeah. learning. Yeah. yeah. And learning that the bear bonds were. Uh, kept in a safe in the panic room yes. and knew that it was like hundreds of millions of dollars. Worth. Yes. And tells Burnham, tells Forrest Whitaker that it's like four million. Right. And that they're going to, and, 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 you know, if the, if Meg, if Judy Foster and Kristen Stewart had not moved in, it actually would have been a perfectly fine plan. Sure. They would have broken in, gotten into the panic room, gotten the money, except for the fact that like, they do say at, at a certain point in the movie, Jared Leto sort of lets slip that there's a lot more money in that panic room that he's then that he's told them, right? And they're both like, "What did you think was going to happen when we got in there? And right. there was a giant pile of money. Did right. you think we would just like let you count it by yourself and right. then hand us our right. share? Yeah. So like, it's a it's even even if it had gone out off without a hitch, Jared Leto probably still would have ended up being killed by Raul. So like it, it, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like it's he's still such a fuck well, up that it's, he, it's, yes. like, even but it's the, also an the infinitely better movie because the three of them are at odds yes. and like their allegiances yeah. between each other shift are constantly, even if it's just for like a laugh line or like a reaction shot that gets a laugh or like builds some tension in a way. It's a better movie because of it. And like yeah. it kind of becomes this like surprise 
box that we end up rooting for Burnham throughout the process of it, too. Yeah. Which, I mean, it helps when you're opposite, you know, the most annoying actor in the world. Um, but I do think he's good in this. I think he 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 nails that character. And a lot of it is the the way that character is presented as well. Obviously, I think the cornrows, for as much as, you know, we have a laugh with it, that's doing work, right? That, that communicates a lot, a lot about what this yeah. fuckhead is is like that he's you know i i would fully believe that he got the cornrows in for the occasion of breaking into this place that he decided he's going to dress up as a criminal for this right and that was part of his like you know thing he seems like that kind of guy and throughout oh the scene with the propane tank i was like i bet jared leto actually set himself on fire for that <laughs> like being an asshole joking and no he he did that stunt he set himself on fire this movie this also is a real turning point for jared leto before this movie he had done requiem for a dream right and american psycho as like but he was he was a very sympathetic per- like in american psycho they're all sociopath assholes but he's not he's not the lead sociopath asshole and he's not nearly the most annoying person in it right and in working for a dream he's like this tragic figure yeah and in fight club he's this beautiful beautiful man who gets the shit beat out of him right so this is the first time loves destroying jared leto's face yes he really does and this is the first time i think that audiences saw jared leto as kind of like i mean for one of a, like an actual actor as opposed to like a pretty yeah. boy who's, yes. you know, yeah. you know, like he's, he's giving a very specific performance that's so different yeah. than anything that most people had seen him do before. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, I think he does exactly what you need him to do. Forrest Whitaker. I mean, if you want somebody to so play good. a, you know, sad eyed old bear, you know what I mean? It's just like that you yeah. get, he's essentially playing his where the wild things are character in this movie. <laughs> um, what a, it's the type of thing that we take for granted, yeah. I think, with actors yeah. like him and specifically with him in that, like, what he actually pulls off in that thing where it's like you kind of side with him and it becomes like this kind of tragic thing about his character. Yes. Like, and that it's also surprising. It's not telegraphing that that's what the movie's going to become. Like, that's a hard thing for an actor to pull off. And it's like, you know, we're dancing around the script. The fact, I think, that, like, we're talking about a script that's meant to be junk. And, like, everything that Fincher is doing is trying to elevate that junk into something interesting. But the actors are doing it, too. And I think Forrest Whitaker is the one that has, like, the hardest task. Yeah, I think it's. I think he pulls it off in that just, like, the first real shot of him where he's broken into the house and he's walking down the stairs and he sees the nightlight in the bathroom. Yeah. That's like a kid's nightlight. And he, and like the look on his face, like he does so much work in just that look of communicating, you know, that he's realizing that there are people that moved in. Yeah. He's realizing that there's probably a kid here. Yeah. That's a kid's, that's that's like not an adult person's nightlight. Right. And he's realizing that all of a sudden this is, 10,000 times more complicated and in a way that is not what he is on board for. And he does it all in a look and you get it in that look. And that really sells so much of it, I think. Yeah. I think that's, it's, it's why you hire Forrest Whitaker. Like you said, it's just like, that's, that's what you get. That's sort of, you know, part of the package and, um, you know, 
does such a great job with that. And I also like the idea that, again, going back to what a fuck up uh, Leto's character is, that like they missed it by one day. If they had just come the day before, you yeah. know, they'd have been golden and, and yeah. they screwed up the timing by one day. Very funny. By one day. Yeah. And then there's – so what do you guys think Raul's – background is like what are we supposed to think about who this guy is well he, I'm, I'm he makes that one sort of stray comment to leto about how like uh you know you get above 125th street for a day and you think you're a gangster or something like that so obviously yeah. he's seemingly you know he's you know based in harlem or whatever and um you, between that and the fact that his name is raul um you wonder if maybe this was a role meant to not be uh, played by uh, country music star Dwight Yoakam. Um, <laughs> but I also feel like that incongruity plays into the fact that like you are on edge with this guy from moment one. And, yeah. and he, he is the classic sort of um, chaos agent that you enter into this movie so that you can in no way be comfortable with anything that's going on because at any moment, uh, he's there, and he presents this sort of like omnipresent threat. Yeah, typically a trope that I find in like crime movies like this to be annoying. Um, but Dwight, Dwight Yoakam is so good. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. really terrifying he, in this. He would, you know, I, I think he'd done just a few movies before that. He was most famously in Sling Blade, right. I think, at that point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he, you know, he acted after but nothing i would say that rises to and he's you know he's acted a fair amount after but i nothing that i feel like rises to the 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 sort of attention that he got for this yeah performance and i you know it's so menacing and so un- upsetting and like and he, when his he gets his fingers caught in the door oh my god i didn't they do so much work to yeah. convince you that that can't happen, right. and then it happens, and I'm still confused as to how it happened. And yet, but regardless, everything's happening so quickly at that moment that, like, yeah. I didn't think about that until after I was done with the movie, and then I was like, "Wait a second, how did he get his hand crushed by that thing?" Because I you're guess. right, like Ian Buchanan like makes a point of being like, "There's a laser, there's a sensor, you can't get, uh, you can't get hurt." Okay. And, but maybe it's yeah. only if you touch those two lasers and his hand was in between. Was in between or something? Yeah, yeah. But like, sounds like it needs more lasers. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't. He, yeah, yeah. He sells the panic and pain of it so well. Like, oh my god! Sometimes it's really hard. I think it deceptively hard as an actor to sell that kind of pain. Yeah, as well as he does, and you just you're just wincing and just like you're like just so uncomfortable in your seat watching him squirm trying to get his hands out of there. And then when he picks up, he's the little so sweaty. His, he, he you know when he finally gets out and he picks up the little picks like the little tips of his fingers that got chopped off. Yeah, just it's it's and then it's just like, well, now you've made him mad, and so now you're even more on edge because it's just like, well, now he's just like completely, you know, off off kilter, and there's really no telling what he's going to do. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the guys. It's like the guys in Uncut Gems. You know, you're like, this is not going to end well. Right. Right. You're not. Yeah, this isn't going to end well for you. You've pissed this guy off enough that you're 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 you've totally screwed yourself over. 
the the last cast member that I wanted to mention who we haven't really talked about is uh, Patrick Bacow as uh, Stephen, the ex-husband, who shows up uh, and gets his ass thoroughly just throttled um, uh, and and then spends the rest of the movie tied to a chair. Uh, I mostly know him from uh, the HBO series Carnival. He played the uh, mm-hmm. the mentalist loads on uh, on uh, Carnival, and he was fantastic. He was absolutely my favorite character in that first season. He was so um, uh, creepy and and sort of you know you didn't know how much he knew, and uh, he was great on that. And then every once in a while he would pop up in some stuff as some sort of you know, a Euro villain, <laughs> some sort or another. And it's like, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's the guy from Carnival. Um, he's got that sort of, he's, he's Belgian and he's got that kind of like yeah. semi-sinister European accent. That, he, I looked in yeah. his, uh, yeah. his filmography. He's obviously played a Bond villain once. So like, yeah, that makes sense. That of tracks. course he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What of Bond villain? Um, I'm not sure. Now I got to find it on his. Uh, what was the movie? Again. Yeah. It's, um, Is this like one of the Roger? Moore's, a I view to seen. a kill. Ah, oh, oh. yes. Which is the one with Christopher right. Walken. So he's not the main bad guy, but I, I mean, I imagine he's a bad guy at least. He could be playing a good guy, but it would it would surprise me. Um, uh, his character's name is Scarpine, and that. So who knows? Uh, no, he's he is uh, he is a murderous loyal associate. There of, we go. Of uh, all right. Of, yeah. Of, of Christopher Walken. Spectacular. Yeah, can I just can I just float uh, a theory that is not original? I don't know where I read this or heard this first. All right, uh, but it's so this is not this is just somebody said this or I read this around the time of the movie's release, and it has always stayed with me. What's that? That this movie that this movie actually doesn't happen. That what happens instead is that the reason that Jodie Foster has left her husband is because he's abusive. And when she moves into the house and learns that uh, that there's a panic room in it, and she herself has obvious, like, claustrophobia issues, sure. it, like, it, like, releases this anxiety in her. And so when she falls asleep, she dreams ah. that the house was invaded and um, and that her husband comes to save her, and that he gets his the shit kicked, like just yeah. ruined of him. Um, and that like that the three men sort of represent id, ego, and super ego. Ah, dream logic. And, there we go. Yeah, yeah, and and that and that the at the very end, the best. I think I think the last shot of the movie is the reason why Fincher wanted to do the movie. Um, because it's this great sort of like he uses the the sort of vertigo uh, Hitchcock shot where he's dollying and zooming at the same time to take the the camera from being this very 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 tight shot on and they're outside Jodie Foster and, and looking up apartment listings uh, looking up yeah. apartment listings uh-huh. on, on a bench and then it dollies back as it or dollies for i can't remember which it is but basically he opens up the frame so instead of being a very tight shot right the 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 world sort of opens around them yeah as the sort of claustrophobia is released and you see right before that shot that hurt the side of her face is bruised which would indicate that she actually did go through this process and she did get beaten up yeah but i i had heard somewhere that like you know that that is that is leftover abuse from the husband and that she never actually, they never actually moved into the house. They, she, she turned it down 
after being in the planner room because it was too much and the house was too much house for them. And, and that's why they're looking at night. listings still. Yeah. And that's why they're looking at listings. And she dreamt that night that that was the, that's what had happened to their family. Interesting. And it was sort of this like revenge fantasy like that. I, I can't, I wish I could credit this to somebody. I read this somewhere else. I can't remember where it came yeah. from, but I, I watched it's so such I a contained s- movie it's like yeah. you don't see any of these criminals before she literally falls asleep at night um exactly. and then that like the like coda on the movie you know it it does kind of allow itself to have that type of contained uh interpretation of you know something not real happening yes yeah so I don't know, like I don't know if there's any truth to it, or if like there was any intention for that whatsoever. But it, it, it's a reading that I had that had stayed with me, and so yeah. when I rewatched the movie for this, I and I paid attention to it. And it really does work. It's not. It works as much as any other reading of it does because sure. there are you know there are sort of leaps of you know, you have to kind of suspend some disbelief. Regardless, sure, as you so, do in in, it, in any movie. Yeah. But yeah, 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 yeah. It's a lot to sell me on, and it's a, it was all a dream uh, scenario, but uh, it's that's an interesting one to noodle over, for sure. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, too, before uh, we uh, uh, move on, but they in that cover story, it's a completely, like, tossed-off mention that at the time, Fincher, Steven Soderbergh, Spike Jones, Sam Mendes, yeah. and Alexander Payne were in talks to form a kind of director's collective that would sort of work and operate together and it was apparently in the works and so i went and dug around uh looking for information on this and it's really kind of limited and you never really there's nothing that i've been able to find at least about what Mm. happened to it because it never eventually comes to fruition but apparently it had come close that it was going to happen at uh essentially like within USA films that within USA films, there would be this collective of these five directors and they would essentially with the aim of them owning whatever films they made under this deal. And there was a CAA guy, uh, Josh Donnan, who was apparently going to sort of head up this uh, shingle, I guess I'm not entirely sure how you would uh, uh, describe it within USA films with these directors. And I wasn't able to find anything beyond this, like mention that it was going to happen. And obviously That's fascinating. It never does. And I wonder if, you know, obviously USA films would go on to be sort of uh, wrapped in uh, wow. Ca- call back to our last uh, mini series on focus features. Um, USA films would eventually mm-hmm. get sort of folded into what became uh, focus. And I wonder if that maybe was one of the sort of things that fall by the wayside when that happened, but I'm not entirely because the timing of that is probably around that time. Right. Cause didn't we do yeah. possession? Uh, for, uh, yes. And that was O2 and possessions. O2. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, but Focus was founded. Focus came together in two thousand two. So I wonder if that ago. was maybe it. That uh, that um, one of the things, one of the casualties of that merger was that this collective never happened. Fascinating. It's an interesting idea. You don't really see stuff like that anymore. These sort of uh, you know artist collectives. This feels like a, a a relic of a of an old studio era kind of a thing, right? Sounds like director Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> what if they've been operating behind the scenes uh, this whole time, pulling strings and whatnot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Can I also ask you just uh, before we move on to the IMDb game, which yeah. I've been very excited to play. Yeah. Um, because this is called This Had Oscar Buzz, I did want to uh, like honor the title of yes, the show. Yes, thank, sort of <laughs> thank you. Thank ad- you. I was going to transition to this as well. Um, because I, one thing that was, I was curious about was, did this movie have Oscar buzz? Because I, it came out so early. Yes. I, I don't, I, you know, I, other than the fact that Jodie Foster at that point in her career, anything she did. It's a fair question. Sort of that's, like, that's the thing. Is that eyes on it. Yeah. But it's a it fair came question. Out so early. Yeah. That like, you know, I, 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 I don't know if it, if, yeah. But so, so I, I, I defer to you two who are the true experts in this. I think that, you know, this is the type of thing that, like, even though once the movie made money and it just, like, ended up being what it was, no. But, like, at this point, Jodie Foster touches anything, and, of course, it's going to be talked about in a certain context. But, like, you know, and this is still Fincher much closer to Seven, so, like, maybe people viewed it with some hesitancy. But, like, I think there is some level of expectation for Jodie Foster at that point, like, still, you know less than a decade away from conceivably being second place to winning her third. Um, I, th- I think it's more of that. And I think when we look at this movie now, we look at it as a, as a Fincher movie. So people think that it would be oscar in that context when it never really was. But maybe if, you know, Fincher, <laughs> the people had appreciated this a little bit more on that level, or Fincher had gotten that appreciation on that level yeah. during this time there's more potential there. I mean, like this is still a movie that I think is overlooked in terms of his movies. Like everybody's like, well, panic rooms. It's you never hear it talked about when people talk about like, you know, what are your finchers or whatever. And, uh, well, and it's really unfair because it's like, yes, this is mostly just a straightforward entertaining movie for him, but it's just as like expertly assembled. And like, I was trying to like hone in on some the way some of the sequences were like shot and assembled. And it's like, he's been doing, you know, the type of thing that like dragging tattoo won an Oscar for, you know, since this movie, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think, well, since fight to, (laughs) to, to Adam's point, we, we mentioned in the, uh, in the little intro uh, mini episode that we did for this, that we, we were admitting to, uh, being a little bit perhaps looser with our criteria for this series, just because we uh, we wanted so much to do this series, and I also feel like there are at least, as we've you know been able to do in this conversation, there are Oscar conversations to be had about Jodie Foster and David Fincher yeah. within this, and I the fact that uh, Panic Room was able to end up getting an Art Directors Guild nomination a sound editor's guild nomination, it wasn't entirely absent. Like, you know, craft nominations yeah. can be a, can be an odd beast. And yet I it, think if, I think if this movie had come out now yes. at the time it came out, yeah. like if it had come out in March of 2021, yeah. for example, not that anything was coming out at that point, but, um, uh, and although I, I guess if no, it would have been eligible. Sorry. I got sidetracked by the, insanity the weird year yeah 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 um (laughs) but if it had come out let's say it came out march of this year yeah i think that there would have been especially because now that fincher has sort of aligned himself with netflix yeah i think there would have been a far more sort of concerted push for the crafts of this i agree for the 
for the right. art direction, for the editing, yep. for the sound design. The score, Howard Shore. Visual effects, I mean, the whole, yeah. like, searching through the house was a revolutionary, like, yeah. Yeah. The time, task yeah. that he was trying to sure. achieve by doing that. And now yeah. it looks a little crunchy, but, like, at the time, yeah. it looked good. And Howard yeah, Shore I mean, is is freaking it with that score. Like, he's... Yeah. It, oh, yeah. It's so good. Really... Really good and ominous yeah. Howard Shoreiness for yeah. sure. Yeah, I, I will. I will be a little bit of a voice of of contrariness on this movie. I don't. I didn't enjoy it as much uh, as it sounds like you guys did because yeah. because once the plot does cl- kick into gear, s- the slickness of it also becomes kind of like switch. Like it, it's it's so finely honed like a swiss watch that it, there's no breathing room at all i found and so like i kept attaching to the performances to try to sort of get something more to connect to um and you know that's part of why i think i spent so much time watching kristen stewart do everything that she was doing sure. so incredibly um because that relationship really is our emotional tether through the whole thing and their actors are doing great it just moves so slickly that i just i once you've seen it once and all you know where it's going to go because the first time you see it it's it's a really is a masterpiece in tension building and yeah. suspense it's really well done that way but as a sort of an emotional experience it, it left me wanting whereas like zodiac which is the next movie he makes right um it's a masterpiece much yeah it's a masterpiece and there's he allows it to get shaggy he allows the characters moments of just being in ways that are far more interesting and and now granted the story really restricts what they can do there with that but i still felt like there might have been like if he were to do this movie again he might want to carve out more spaces for that kind of moment those kinds of moments. I, 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 mm-hmm. I, that yeah. was just, I think, the thing that I think left, kept this movie also from really taking off because the premise is so great. It's Cracker Jack sort of B-movie thriller yeah. filmmaking. But you, you're, I was left anyway feeling like I'm relieved it's over so I can unclench my pillow. But I'm, <laughs> I don't, I, I'm not really relieved for the characters sure, because I, sure. my investment in them is not as, as full as I would have wanted. I don't necessarily it's not the most interesting Fincher protagonist. That is right. definitely, you know, something against the movie, but I, I mean like compared to like what you would otherwise immediately compare it to, that's not a David Fincher movie. Like I, I do think it's still kind of a cut above. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. What yeah. the immediate comparison would be. For We're grading movie. on a curve here. Yeah, really. exactly. well, I, I, and and I don't disagree with uh, with what you're saying about the character, the characters, and the characterizations. And yet, the thing about you know, once you know where it's going, and the sort of the real the watchability of it, for me, because this movie has so many sort of memorable moments in it that almost like exist out of order in my memory i was trying to watching it again and i was like well we got to get to the point where um she throws the the bag into the panic room as it's the door shutting and then we've got to get to the point where like forrest whitaker sees her and I, I i was trying to sort of like reconstruct it back as i was watching i was like how are these pieces all going to fit and then watching the sort of like swiss watch precision of watching everything click into place as it goes along i was like at it's not a great 
character movie necessarily, and yet I found myself so riveted by watching this scenario sort of come together. And yeah, you know, that for me was was enough. I, I, I it's it's a classic in the. I'm watching TV on my couch on a Saturday, and what's going to keep me, you know, parked and happy is uh, is Panic yeah. Room. I feel like, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, thank you, Adam, for mentioning uh, that we probably should move on to the IMGP game pretty soon because we are <laughs> over the two-hour mark. Uh, these episodes, this whole miniseries is going to be off the chain. So, uh, fair warning, listeners, and uh, and we love you all. All right. Lovers of long nistlers, buckle up. Uh, Chris, long episodes. would you like to explain to our listeners what the IMDb game is? Yes. Every week, we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we will mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles released years as a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. That is the IMDb, the IMDb game. game. Adam, as our guest, you get the choice yes. to uh, give or guess first, and also uh, which direction do you want this round robin to go? Uh, I'll, I will start okay, uh, so that I can experience the triumphant side of it first okay. and then crash and burn. <laughs> uh and then crash and burn terribly later um uh so but my question and then i and then you and then whichever one of you wants to go next is i, I fine with me um i i felt um you sent me the spreadsheet of all of the names that you guys have done in the past and yeah and it is considerable and so really restricted i kept being like is it this i could do this nope nope they did that one so i found three other movies that were in this uh preview issue of ew well wait before you decide that who who are you going uh, to who are you going to quiz who are you going to oh i see yeah well joe okay i'm gonna quiz you all right you'll quiz me i'll quiz um, chris and then chris will quiz you okay perfect that sounds good all right um so uh so joe yes do you want so so i i i there are three all right actresses okay who i looked at who i've i I have the information for okay all three of which fronted movies in uh the spring of 2002 who are who are in some form or fashion reflected in this issue uh, Britney Spears, Mila Jovovich, and Mia Verdellos. Which one oh my do God. you want to do? I will give you that choice of which one of those do you want to do. Well, I feel like I'm not well-versed enough in the Resident Evils enough to do Mila Jovovich. And I, I genuinely don't know what would constitute Britney Spears is. So I'm going to go with uh, Nia Vardalos, if only because uh, my Big Fat Greek Wedding uh, just experienced uh, their big uh, 20-year anniversary last week. So. All right. So um, so in keeping with the rules, I will tell you up front yes. that one of these titles is a TV title. Okay. So is it both the My Big Fat Greek Wedding TV show and movie? Are those two of the entries? Well, you have you're gonna have to tell oh, sorry. me what the okay. name of the TV show is. Oh, my big fat if, Greek if, life. Yes, correct. All right. That was the fourth. That's that's and that's slot four. Uh, so I imagine my big fat Greek wedding. The film is number one. Yes, that is correct. Um, 
a film that is uh, very dear to Chris and I and our, uh, our uh, well, Adam, you're the one who uh, so encourages me on uh, on when I go on to screen drafts. So uh, I famously vetoed Chris's suggestion of Connie and Carla on a screen mm-hmm. draft, even though I do really like Don't think I've forgiven you. No, you haven't. It was strategic. It was just to make sure that other things got on. But I love that movie. Uh, so I'm going to guess Connie and Carla. Unfortunately, IMDb also spurns Chris Ooh. because no, it is not one of the four, All which right. surprised me. We got to get people on the Connie and Carla train if n- for no other reason than to get my Big Fat Creek life out of Neo Vardalos's I need known for. I need some theater in New York City to to screen uh, Connie and Carla. You've got you've got two more. We slots. We can host that screening. All right, two more two slots. Guys. Is one of them My Life in Ruins? No. Okay. Good. <laughs> Like that's it shouldn't be, but um, okay, all right. So, uh, what are my years? Uh, you've got 2016 and 2009. Oh, there was a uh, a sequel movie, wasn't there? Was there? Am I going crazy? Wait a second. Um, wasn't there like a years later Greek wedding sequel that was called something? My big fat Greek baby? That's a weird thing to say about a baby. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> now I want to see my big fat Greek baby. I'm going to be laughing about my big fat Greek baby for a But that's time. sort of that's the that's the trajectory of these uh, of these rom-coms. They have a they have a baby in the first one. Okay. They have a kid. They send her to school. Right. Right. Um, okay. It was. Is it just my big fat Greek wedding part two? That I'll, uh, that I'll accept. That it's it's literally just my big fat Greek wedding. Two. Okay. They, okay. They, you know, as unimaginatively written as the first one was, it's it goes against the my big fat Greek wedding two. Good movie. Yeah. Oh, have you seen it? I have not seen it. It goes against yes. all modern uh, sequel title. Uh, conventions, yeah. but uh, okay. conventions. So you got you've got one, and I will just say to you, I had never heard of this movie. The one that I, um, I, okay. the the one. So so this is this is. I will be really impressed if you get it, even with lots of hints. Uh, but so just know that it's two thousand and nine. Two thousand and nine. So like the fact that this is other than more than Connie and Carla, more than. The the that other movie that you mentioned, which I had also heard of, but can't remember the name of. Um, this is uh, this is a movie that I had. I didn't. If know you it. haven't heard of it, it's going to be really hard for me to imagine that I have heard because, like, the I have heard of. Have it. Have you really? Oh God! Because I'm trying to think <laughs> listen, of like. Listen, we we support Neofardalos in this household. Um, it, the big thing, the big thing, you may be able to at least get this or close to it it's a reunion for her and a co-star yeah huh basically three of the four movies in her in her indb most known for star her and 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 one other actor is it john corbett Mm -hmm. okay So here's my thing of the other Nia Vardalos movies that I know that I met. So like, I know she's the boss in for a good time call, but like, I imagine Adam, you've, you've seen for a good time call, or at least you've heard of it. Um, she's in, I don't think this is the right answer either, but my, my friends and I, one time 
just went and decided to just get the most weird looking red box movies possible. And we got this movie where she, um, she outs her son, but he's not really gay. Uh, I believe is the oh. plot of the movie that is, I believe called helicopter mom. I, is it helicopter? Mom? <laughs> I don't think John Corbett's in that though. So, I'm probably not. There right. is a movie called Helicopter Mom. Yeah, that came out in 2014. 14. Well, Start. way too late. Yeah, I'm 1,000 percent watching Helicopter Mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so. Dumb. Okay, so okay. the title of this movie, Joe. We'll try to get you. Yeah, to get to like the title. yeah, Mad Libs okay. it for me. It's a uh, something that maybe people who think negatively of a certain Gary Marshall movie might say. Yeah, it's and Gary it's it, the, and the poster. The poster Ugly is, Women. No. The, po- um, the, the poster no. the poster is um has one somewhat quasi common phrase written out. And then one of the words, the operative verb, is scrawled out and the opposite of that verb is written in. <laughs> oh, oh, so like um so like I love Robert Mitchell and it's like crossed out and it's I hate. Like it's like John Tucker must yes. not live but like die, right? Like that kind of so thing. So you're you're halfway there. You're halfway there. We're gonna we're gonna bring you home. Bring you home. Name there. some Gary Marshall movies. Gary uh well I tried Pretty Woman. Um uh like I hate blank. <laughs> I hate blank. I hate Oh, is it like one of like I hate New Year's Eve. I hate uh, Mother's Day. Almost there. Um, almost, almost there. Almost there. You are so close to getting. What's the other one? Oh, um, it's literally the other one. Yeah, it's it's uh, Valent. I hate Valentine's Day. There. There's a movie no, called I Hate Valentine's Day. Jesus Written Christ. and directed <laughs> by Neo Vidalos. Wow. Yeah. Wait. So. Yeah. And that's why I think that's why it's in her top four is because she directed it. So that makes a lot of sense. I'm look. I, I'm 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 bringing this up because I need to. I need to see what else it could have. Like I can't imagine that that's her. Okay. Weirdly enough, now that I'm looking at this, oh, she didn't have any uh, writer director credit on My Life in Ruins because that was also that same year. At least I've heard of that one. Weird. All right, Adam, you're you're a chaos agent. I love this. Thank you so much. All right, you're very welcome. I I can't you're believe I made welcome. it out of that one alive. But all right, uh, Chris, for you, yeah. Um, I I tumbled down the David Kep uh, uh rabbit hole. Uh, very recently, he uh was it wrote? He just wrote right because the Soderbergh directed uh Kimmy. Uh, David Kep uh, wrote the screenplay for Kimmy. Love that Kimmy. Love that Kimmy. Once you mentioned to me, Chris, the way Kimmy dries her hands, I couldn't not... With her hand sanitizer, it is my favorite thing in that movie. And Rita Wilson is in that movie. Kimmy drying her hands and uh, award show audiences uh, applauding for uh, Coda are not entirely far apart in terms of uh, gesture type. It's like she's squishing an invisible pillow. (laughs) It's actually more... Who are we guessing? Why... Why, who, oh, who sorry. Sorry. It's, I'm, I'm giving Chris Zoe Kravitz. Oh, okay. Oh. Zoe Kravitz. Uh, any television? Uh, no. Okay. Um, mm. 
Ooh, see, she's in a lot of franchises. Not a lot of good ones. But I don't know can't imagine Selena Kyle is already there, though. Um, ooh, no television, no big little eyes. Um, she's in X-Men First Class, and that shows up a lot, so X-Men First Class. Bingo, X-Men First Class, you got one. Nice. Um... God, please, no Fantastic Beasts. <sighs> She's in those goddamn Divergent movies. She's in Mad Max. I'm going to guess Mad Max. As Toast the Knowing in Mad Max Fury Road. Yes, two for two. Shout out to your previous guest. Yes, shout out Kyle. Uh, yes. Okay, I'm just going to say Divergent. Yeah, Divergent, three some... for three. You are Jesus. three for three on Zoe Kravitz. Can you make it? Divergent. She has to be like second build in this, so I'm going to say Rough Night. Not Rough Night. Strike one. Nope. No perfect score. All right, then Fantastic Beasts. No Fantastic nope. Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. So, uh, so you... Yes, erase it from the internet. Okay, what's my year? You're going to kick yourself, it's 2022. <laughs> Jesus Christ, it's the Batman. It's the Batman. <laughs> How is that already? The, I mean, I get it. She's playing... She's playing Catwoman. An, an it's incredibly... It's, it's one of the biggest movies of the year. Of course she's known for that. But in IMDb games, stuff this recent doesn't normally show up. Yeah, it usually takes a little no. bit for stuff to cycle in. I wonder the, how many Catwomen have Catwoman in there. That's no? a question. Do you guys know how this gets decided? Wait, do you know? It's basically algorithm. I know. I have no idea. No. I was hoping you did. No, it's a mysterious algorithm that uh, that you know a Rumpelstiltskin type figure at the at the center of the Earth sort of uh, uh, flips some switches and 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 messes with it. Okay. It's insane. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Chris, you give to Adam. All right, so uh, one of the recastings that we didn't really talk about were uh, Kristen Stewart was actually the third actress cast in the daughter role the first who was fired in rehearsals is the person i have selected for you it is miss hayden panettiere (laughs) no this is gonna be there is one television well obviously like okay the television is heroes yes yes if you were gonna say no it's nashville i would have laughed my ass out (laughs) uh that would have been amazing this is this is going to be impossible for me because I only know I can only conjure one other Hayden Panettiere movie off the top of my head, and so it, I'm really hoping it Scream Four is there. Scream Four, yeah, she's great okay. in it. Okay, then you're going to have to hint me for the other two. Give me years for the other two. Okay, we'll we'll, we'll burn them off and say there's years. The years are 2000 and 2009. So one while Heroes is going on. One while Heroes is going on. So 2000, she was just starting. She's more of a kid then. Yes, she, in the 2001, she is, if I remember correctly, like, this is a sports movie, and she's basically like the team mascot wise-ass kid. Yeah, she's the second build character's daughter, I'm pretty sure. Uh, That doesn't help me at all. Um, it's a Disney sports movie. <sighs> Man, Disney really. sports movie with like one of the biggest movie stars in the world. 
Disney sports movie with one of the biggest movie stars from 2000? Yeah. Yes. Um, Disney one sports. of the biggest movie stars in the world who is a recent Oscar nominee. Oscar nominee, but not winner? Yes. Right. Okay. Um, mm. <laughs> okay. It's a uh, football movie. It's a football movie. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, remember the Titans. Yes. Remember those Titans. That's right. She is she is the daughter of um, Will Patton. The Will Patton. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Why did I think it was Dennis Quaid? Because he's in, anyway. Uh, I can remember that Aiden Payne of Tears. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, okay. okay. So um, uh, in the final one, two thousand nine, she is the titular role. Yes. Oh shit. I don't I have no idea cuz I you're going to have to give me more than well, that. Well, we can I, play I, the I, same I, game I, you played with me with my mystery Nia Vardalos <laughs> movie. <laughs> <laughs> Except it's kind of the reverse. So if I hate you or I hate Valentine's Day wasn't crossed off, what would it say? Oh, is it Valentine's Day? You've got to be kidding me. It's is it not, Valentine's no, Day? No, 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 not, no, not that no. clean. That would have been amazing. Okay. No. Um, uh, wait, so if it's not, I, 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 so it's, I love you something. Yes. Yes. I love you titular role. Oh shit. What is that movie? I now can, I have it in my head. I it, know what it is. It's a Chris Columbus movie, name. which I didn't realize until I just clicked on its entry. I'm I oh man what is was the that his first part post Harry Potter movie I love you no the first post Harry Potter movie Chris Columbus did was Rent right <laughs> uh I love I you love you blank blank oh my god I I can see the poster I can picture it I know what this is I just cannot remember the not Lizzie but. <laughs> um not Lizzie? Oh god. What's a is... different uh, Elizabeth nickname? Oh. Oh, I love you, Beth Cooper. There you go. I love you, Beth Cooper. You go. got it. Okay. I got I got there. Okay, thank you. Amazing. We got there. We brought it home. Uh, <sighs> fantastic job, Adam. Um I'll never forgive you for that Nevardalos one, even though I <laughs> I picked it from three, but uh, all right. Yeah. Um, can't think the Milo Jovovich, Milia Jovovich one would have been way harder. Okay. It would have been much more, much more upset with me. Oh, fantastic. That one. Um, yeah. Adam, can't thank you enough for uh, for hopping onto this one. The perfect way to kick yes. off our EW miniseries. All the expertise we could have possibly asked for. Um, thank and, you so much. And way more. Way yes, more than way you more. ever wanted or needed. Uh, <laughs> I we got to get cast on a on a screen drafts together at some point. I want to. Yes, that would be delightful. I'll, I'll, I'll we'll we'll end up fighting terribly, but you know what? It'll be it'll be a good time. It'll be amazing. Yeah. It'll all right. Um, yeah. We've got one. Chris and I spoiler uh, are maybe going to be 
back on that show soon so um oh very good so i know i'm gonna be back on it too as well i know um, you wait are you my... doing the no when you mentioned alien i was like i initially thought alien resurrection i thought you might be on the one that katie's going to be on the 97 no 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 i'm i am um i don't want to i don't want to steal clay thunder so i won't yeah I won't as yet un- unannounced yeah i won't tell you on yeah. mic but what well, we can when we stop recording, all right well then let's get to there as quickly as possible that is our episode okay. uh dear listeners if you want more this had oscar buzz you can check out the tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Adam, where can our listeners find you online? You can find me on Twitter at at Adam B. Very. And uh, my writing is at variety.com. Check them out. Uh, uh, You won't regret it. Uh, I don't know what I was going to add in there. It's just like you'll get a prize. I don't know. Just uh, (laughs) you'll be amply rewarded with uh, fantastic uh, journalism. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That is F-E-I-L. Yes, indeed. I am on Twitter and Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So wedge your hand out of that panic room or door you got it stuck in and write something nice about us, won't you? That's all for this week, but we hope we'll be back next week for more Entertainment Weekly and more buzz.